Alright guys, you know me and you kind of know our fans a little bit and I love finding new tips and tricks and good ways to roleplay and different opportunities. So we've all had goblins on the brain lately and I'm wondering when you come up with goblin NPCs and what have you, what is a fear or a weakness you would give that goblin uh, to kind of help flesh it out? Me personally, um, I would love to see a goblin that just has like a fear of insects like being outside, which I think would be a really funny thing to come across as uh, a group of adventurers who come across a goblin in the forest who's just afraid of anything that moves. I think that would be freaking hilarious. Uh, anyways, what do you guys think? What fear or weakness to give a goblin NPC? Do we want to roll for this, Adam? Sure, why not? I got a natural 20. Well, then it doesn't matter what the fuck I got, so. Um, so last week we mentioned briefly the uh bulgaunts and what are the what are the their names the, the bulgaunts the weird the dolgaunts? dolgaunts that's the word and the dolgrims yeah. yeah so we saw that that there was that one like dolgrim that had like the or the like 18 or the eight arms and the four legs and the two faces and the mouths that are slapping together it's just two arms and two legs sure but sure but yeah. uh two sets of two uh two arms and two legs nope. anyways just two legs and two arms but Two faces. No, they had four arms because they had like the oh, yeah. crossbow. Yeah. They yep. have multiple limbs. So um, I don't want to go quite that far with it. But having a um, goblin with like one leg too short or um, one arm that oh, is so, just so obnoxiously. A, a weakness. Uh, yeah, weakness. Uh, like obnoxiously beefy arm. Like not like just something off. Not necessarily a fear or weakness, but something off. Right? Um. Yeah, I would just have one that does not speak goblin. Oh, yes. That's like, amazing. Like a, <laughs> like a goblin that is legitimately terrified of other goblins, goblinoids in general. I don't want to be a part of the host. I don't speak goblin. I denounce goblin living. Has not listened to the last three episodes of this <laughs> podcast is the point. Okay, okay. It's a mimic. The Roundtable Dungeons & Dragons discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another episode in our conversation on mob mentalities, where we look at some of the militant humanoids out there that can make up the enemy armies in Dungeons & Dragons. I'm Dan, and with me today is Adam, and this episode is called Goblinoid Hosts, the Region's Legion Strategians. I, I, <laughs> yeah, it took me a while to come up with that one. I, I sometimes feel like you build these things just to make me mess up. I, I often try, yes. Yeah, okay. Well, anyways, we've reached out to our army of friends and allies to help us break down what a goblinoid host looks like in 5th edition. We've covered the stats and details last episode about the basic goblin, goblin boss, bugbear, bugbear chief, nilbogs, as well as all of the booyog, booyog, booyogs, and every other magic Every booyog, yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, hold on, what else? We, we hit the barguest. We've done a, uh, did we say warg? Like we've done a lot. On we've the last done, we've done a lot yeah. in the last couple episodes, but today we're covering all the different hobgoblin entries that from the published 5e material. Well, it's finally time to talk about the biggest threat goblin kind has to offer. Specifically hobgoblins. These are the... Really? You think they're the biggest threat? That hobgoblins have to offer. Oh, sorry. That goblinoid kind has to offer. Yeah. I don't know. Bugbears are just so much more chaotic and vicious and sneaky. Goblins, they just keep fucking banging out more baby goblins. Yes, but goblins are cowardly and... Not always. Yeah, we not dispelled always, yeah, that. We, we did that. And bugbears are lazy. Not always. Sometimes they're... They're just nocturnal. Nocturnal. That's what I said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is an order 
two hobgoblins that makes them particularly the organization. It's, yeah. it's what it's the difference between me and Dave. I'm hyper organized, and that makes me scarier than Dave. He owns guns and has a great big beard, but but I I I have hidden his ammunition. So yeah, with with Dave, you know what to get with something like a hobgoblin or you. You know that there's some unknown plot or or that there's or a long term long term strategy, strategy yeah. going on. So, anyways, physically. Hobgoblins have orange skin of varying tone. They stand about as tall as a normal human and weigh roughly the same. They look fairly standard size human. Like if you caught a silhouette of a hobgoblin, a silhouette of a human, you'd probably not be able to tell the difference. between. Except for the ears, maybe. Except for the ears, maybe if you were close enough. They almost have like their ears are big enough. They're almost, they're not quite, but they're almost like furbolg-ish ears. They're big. Yeah. Yeah. They also mature at the same rate as our baseline humans do. But where they differ from our baseline is their yellow to dark brown, dark vision granting eyes and wide, sharp toothed maws reminiscent of our mischievous goblins when they finally glowed up. That, that, that's a thing, right, Adam? Glow, glowing up? I don't know what the fuck you mean by glowing up. You should talk to me, Aka. I sure, man. Is this a new fucking millennial thing? I think it is. Yeah. It's, yeah. Anyways, these hardy man-sized gobbies have only one other what the discernible. What's wrong with you? What? Man-sized gobbies? Yeah. I got a man-sized gobby for you, Dan. <laughs> Anyways, these hardy man-sized gobbies have only one other discernible difference to their features. Swing to the left. No. Um, different colors. No, in the nose region. The males tend to have either a blue or a red nose, which to hobgoblins everywhere is a sign of virility and status and will often flare in color during combat or any exertion, like when our cheeks get red after a um, run. 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 Speaking of status, these goblins are the peak of goblinoid genetics. Hobgoblins rule over goblins and bugbears alike and with a seemingly blessed gift from the gods... All goblins and bugbears will concede to this pecking order and fall in line to a hobgoblin warlord's directives and orders. Will they fall in line to any hobgoblin or just a warlord? It depends on the situation. Like four bugbears and one hobgoblin, the bugbears might hesitate but be like, nah, man, you're just the one hobgoblin. But like ten hobgoblins and three bugbears... The bugbears will probably fall in line. So it's not its not like giants where no matter what, you can have one frost giant running a thousand hill giants mm-hmm. because might makes right. Bigger is better. Yeah. Right. In goblin or in a giant society. But in goblinoid society, that's not quite it. There's some wiggle room. Rank does matter. Yeah. And But numbers matter. And I guess um, ferocity matters. And- yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of the goblins and bugbears will are kind of like pre- disposed to joining a host so when when the third part of that trinity comes together in the in the hobgoblins the utterings of a host being formed will probably draw the goblins and the bugbears in line but if there's not enough hobgoblins to kind of really run it probably not well remember there's someone above the hobgoblins and that's maglubiet yeah and you don't want to fuck with that guy exactly maglubiet has seemed to bless uh, has seemed to have blessed these hobgoblins in some ways, though, because you see that they value discipline and martial prowess, that their lesser cousins either don't have the time or the form to equally appreciate. So they just concede to the regimented hobgoblins. As for society of specifically hobgoblins, let's get into it. We'll talk specifically about how the host breaks down later. Right now, we're just talking hobgoblins. Sure. Okay. Or hobble gobbles. Or hobble gobbles. 
Hobgoblins. Where where did that come from? Hobblegobbles? Yeah. That's that's me when in our regular campaign. Okay. At, at one point, I want to say Terry called them uh, called a goblin a gobble. And then I went, oh, well, then we have hobblegobbles too. And that just stuck in my brain. And so every time a hobgoblin NPC shows up, I say the word hobblegobble. That is entirely me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I It came up a couple times when we were playing and I'm like, that is that, is that a thing? Well, I mean, I'm the guy who coined the Kaboblin, right? Which was the the you have ex- yes, you have explained it nine hundred fucking times yeah. on the podcast. It's a great weapon. What? Anyways, um, amongst hobgoblins, um, hobgoblins as a culture are divided into legions. Amongst hobgoblins, rank and status are earned through force. Such hobgoblins who earn these ranks run the operation of the legion. Every hobgoblin has a rank and a role in the Legion, and should you step from your responsibilities, your reputation and honor can be stripped from you, either by your rank or your head. Either or. Legions are divided up into family groups called banners. These banners are also ranked, so a soldier from a lower-ranking banner will follow the orders of a soldier from a higher-ranked banner. Banners and legions also vary in size and build, each falling into whatever their role is. If any rank or banner becomes troublesome or useless, a hobgoblin warlord will wipe it clean from the legion for maximum efficiency. Holy shit. So they will just straight up knock out family trees. Yes. Yeah. If, if they fail their mission, Yikes. they're gone. Now, should any legions come together, they will often fight each other to compete for status. Is this like... Like jousting, gladiatorial fighting, or are they like I no? Uh, this is this is very hard and brutal, and like two legions will kill each other if they are certain this is not the formation of a host. Okay, all right. So this is separate of a host. So what's a host? Oh, we'll get to it. We'll get yeah. Okay. We will get to what a host is. Anyways, so um, a, th- this this really pans up to the point where like a moot, like a meeting of the legions is destined to descend into violence if a particularly strong warlord is not at hand to command them all. Should that be, though, the formation of legions is a truly terrifying army, especially considering the strategic geniuses that hobgoblins are. That genius goes beyond that of your baseline human. That is until an elf is seen, however. Then that genius, the tactics, the strategy, all of that will go out the window as all hobgoblins hate those evil pointy-eared assholes. Every breath of an elf is an affront to Maglubiet, and they so they will rush any elf to kill it first. That's cool. So, ha, when you've got a goblinoid host that is that is attacking, the bugbears don't have a straight up like enemy enemy. Yeah. Goblins though will go after the cleric. Yeah. Or anybody that is that is praying or or displaying an elf for another god in some yeah. way. Yeah. And and the hobgoblins are going to target the elf. Yeah. So. That's a great way to just, like, fuck with your party. Mm-hmm. Especially since Elf Cleric is a fairly common build. Yeah, and, and normally you don't see a whole lot of Elven Barbarians, right? Like, mm-hmm. your Elves are Rangers and Rogues. They stay to the back. The idea that they're going to get charged should scare the shit there, out of there's them. There's this feel that Elves are uh, they're nimble, but they're not exactly hardy. They're kind of fragile. That's one of the things that frustrates me about 5th Edition, by the way. Just sidebar totally. I believe that your hit dice should be based upon the race that you are in. uh, Goliaths should have a D12 hit die. Halflings should have a D6. Hot take. That's just me. But I don't think it should be up to casters versus physical. I know why they did it for game design statistics, but I just don't think it makes any sense. 
with the lore. And the the idea that that there's a halfling barbarian that a level two, so like early in the career, just can can out fucking like constitution its way past a Goliath, you know, wizard. Just it seems fucking stupid to me. I one I completely agree with you. However, there is a fix for this, and it is found in Pathfinder Two. So there's no fix for this, and we don't need to talk about it anymore. We are just going to mention this real quick. You may. I am zoning the fuck out. You wave your hands when it's time for me to come back. Okay. Pathfinder 2 does have a system where hit points are generated from both the race and the class. Um, however, Pathfinder removed a lot of the dice rolling and randomness to character creation. So it gives you a static, like a goblin will give you six total hit points. And then you'll get a barbarian, which will give you another 10 hit points on top of that, giving you a starting hit point of 16. And then from then on out, your class determines. If there's some way to homebrew that into a uh, modern 5e game, then sure. I'd like to see that. I, I don't know exactly how that would work and still be balanced. But um, I, I agree with you. Having your race mean nothing to the amount of hit points unless you're a hill dwarf, I think it is. Mountain dwarf. Mountain dwarf. Whatever one gives you plus one hit point per level. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only one that does that. Yeah. So I just think with like the hollow bones of an Aarakocra... You should be squishy. Yeah, I completely agree. Locatha, a Locatha barbarian should not be able to take more damage than a fucking um, orc ranger. No, I, I agree. I agree. Back to hobgoblins. Right. Okay. Hobgoblins. Specifically the legions. Legions, it may really sound like legions are going to be in constant war. They're really not. Uh, although that is their main goal, sometimes a legion has to plan, build, and prep. This leads to things like a passion for animal husbandry, for example. Uh, not, not that kind of husbandry. Um, <laughs> hobgoblins will domesticate oxen and that, horses that. as lipstick pack animals. on them and shit, too. Or they will <laughs> domesticate wargs and horses as war mounts. Either way, they will also train ravens for carrying letters and will gather various other beasts to loose during battles, like attack dogs, hydras, or carnivorous apes. Holy shit. Yeah, all of these are mentioned specifically. It also says that sometimes they, uh, there are sects of hobgoblin. <laughs> sects. I can't hit that. No, no, no. There are groups of hobgoblins. There are banners of hobgoblins that will ride carnivorous apes as mounts into battle. Not even touching it. Yeah. I'm not even... Let me go, let me go ride my husbandry ape. A legion on the move, however, will raid and target areas of strategic wealth, whether through resources or whether they're positioned well. They will then set up battlements and strongholds to then expand their conquest forth. But they're smart. They will recon nearby targets before gathering the legion and attacking. If their target is another stronghold, for example, they will properly siege it, cutting off supply lines and escape routes because a starved enemy is easier to kill than a hardy, well-fed one. If the defenses of a looted stronghold are good, they will then be approved upon with some of the most vicious war machines and, de and defensive measures. It is important to realize that a hobgoblin's life revolves around the concept of war. They are inspired by the romantic visions of war and nonplussed by the horrors of it. So a horrors? hobgoblin horrors. Horror, uh, there's a second, horrors. Second horrors. syllable, horror. Yeah, yeah. A hobgoblin will never run from battle because they believe... The axe in life will translate to their death, and a coward has no place in the great eternal war. Now, do you think that 
that's just indoctrination from Maglubiot. Or um, is that just like ingrained in a I think it's ingrained in their culture. Okay. But, um, we'll talk about Hobgoblins as player characters later, but some of the things they get really lean towards this heavy martial bravery focus. Yep. Right? Okay. Um, but you mentioned Maglubiot and, and it's kind of in this aspect, you do see that Hobgoblins are nearly fanatical worshippers of specifically Maglubiot. Now, they've still got a couple of gods. That are still alive. They do. And we'll talk about them in a minute. Um, but those gods specifically are like generals of Magubliet. Magubliet. And point the hobgoblins toward. They they are definite seconds to Magubliet. Magubliet. Yeah. So it's interesting to me that the goblins who run in fear of Magubliet got one god plus the Nilbog, right? But just the one who enslaves. Yeah. The bugbears who... You know, have to be kind of whipped into shape and whatnot. They still have two gods that are alive. But the hobgoblins who are just like fanatical, like, um, Maglubiot followers, they promote them all the time. They actually kept a few of their pantheon. You can tell that Maglubiot favors them and favors, um, strength and brutality. Yeah. And, and, um, I would, I'm not going to say cruelty necessarily. Yeah. But, um, a lack of compassion, let's mm-hmm. say. Yeah. Well, you see, you really see that hobgoblins are, they're a conquesting horde. Um, so with a D? They're not. Yes, that's with a D. I bet it they're, is. They're not necessarily there to terrorize a like a realm. Like they don't burn down the villages after they raid them. They keep them up and keep the people inside. They're there to, to be rulers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, it's the act of war. They're they're uh, uh, hobgoblin isn't there to destroy a village that poses no challenge to them, unless it is on the march or uh, unless part it's of the on strategy. the march or it's it's got some sort of strategic value. But if there's a little podunk, mean nothing village, a day's ride out of the way that has no strategic value, no resource value, they're just gonna walk by. I also feel like if there's a small fledgling village with six houses and, you know, a, a grain silo in the middle of farmland and whatnot, but there's one main road that comes down between them all, um, and it's almost like an extended family farmstead, Yeah, the Hobgoblin army would walk down the road through yeah. and just bypass this. If there's nothing there to look at, it's just more background scenery, whereas the bugbears would be like, ah, oh, Buck, I'm just going to go murder a cow and eat those three chickens. And then goblins are like, shiny? Yeah. Shiny and can I kidnap you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's not going to be that way with so hobgoblins. So are hobgoblins slavers then? <laughs> yes and no. I think uh, goblins kind of have this focus on slavery uh, that Kagorbayog gives them. Um, there's none of that really with hobgoblins. Right? They do it because it's still kind of part of goblinoid culture. Uh, they don't need to. They have goblins. And that specifically is when a host forms, they task goblins with managing slaves. Sure. Okay. Right. Um, So goblins like the bottom bitch. Yeah, pretty much. Anyways, um, hobgoblins from birth are trained in the art of war. They hold and record tomes of history to learn tactics and strategies to inform their conquest for their mighty god. So they read, rear animals, and have a semi-permanent strongholds. You could... Be fooled into thinking that hobgoblins are just as civilized as any other medium humanoid culture, but there is a hard savagery that does underline them. Any criminals are are put to death with harsh and swift and no mercy. The smallest offense being rewarded with death 
at an executioner's block. There is no beauty as we know it in Hobgoblin Night, uh, in Hobgoblin Life. Art, music, if they do not glorify war or serve a practical purpose, they are seen as frivolous and useless. There is often a very feudal Japan feel to put on Hobgoblins, but I also feel like ancient Sparta lines up well with them as well. The only reason that I get a feudal Japan thing is, first of all, they talk about honor. but A lot of their art leads to Yeah, their art yeah. really gives us a samurai kind of view. Yep. Um, except for one of them, which looks like a ninja, right? So that's kind of where you, you draw those lines. I've got, a lot of them have like the, the samurai knot on top yep. of their head, like the, the top, knot. top knot. Like you do get those flavorings through the art, but you don't necessarily see that, with the exception of the word honor, anywhere in this breakdown they feel more like roman legions they do feel like roman legions in that respect right but in rome we saw that there was this heavy focus on philosophy and stuff unless it has to do directly with war or battle yeah they just don't give a shit they don't give a shit your bard is not going to talk you out of this one yeah pretty much back to magubliet who slew all but two of the hobgoblin gods so long ago that even hobgoblin legend lore has forgotten their names the only two that have that exist are Nomagea, who is a stoic and merciless tyrant under uh, that many hobgoblins will worship under Maglubiet. There's also Bargivrek. Close. Bargrivyek. Better. Okay. Bargivyek. No. Nope. <laughs> Bargrivyek. Yeah. Barv. No. Nope. No. Barg? Barg. Okay. Barg, has, whose portfolio. Barg has bite. Yeah. Yeah. Whose portfolio involves discipline, duty, and order. Their res- re- their relationship between these two are if we had Terry and Brad helming a series together. Not each other's first choice, but they will work with what they got. I don't know who I pity in that. <laughs> yeah, I, right? I, I, really I want to watch that show. Yeah, I think Terry's going to be shocked at just, like, he's not the most perverted person in that duo. Yeah. And he, he like, his jaw will hit the floor and then Brad will take use of that. A lot of the other gods in the Covenoid Pantheon have been crushed under the Iron Fist of Maglubliet. Uh, but the hobgoblin pair are far more free to influence the hobgoblins as the hobgoblin way of life pleases the warlike Magubliet. Maglubiet. I said it right that time. Maglubiet is glue in it. Maglubiet. You spelled it wrong in your notes, Dan. It's Maglubiet. The L's before the U? Yes. Uh, dang it. All right. So when you get into uh, these two gods, you will also see that no temple is constructed for these two. They get nothing more than shrines and prayers around a dinner table of roast boar, porridge, and milk. That said, priests of Nomagea, those who school and train the young and old hobgoblins in war and strategy, will always wield his uh, two favored weapons, a longsword and a hand axe, into battle. Whereas priests of Bargriviek are the police force of the hobgoblin legion. Who wield deadly flails with heads dipped in white paint. It is bullshit that we did not get stat blocks for these guys. It really is. They're badass. There are a lot of hobgoblins that are mentioned in passing without any real idea of how they function on a battlefield. Yeah, we don't have any of these like uh, veterans of Nomagea or these priests of Bargriviek. Yeah. Right? Um I'd like to see something because like this idea of them swinging around this dire flail with the white head. Like that's a terrifying image. Oh, I will show you that right now, Dan. Not look. not that terrifying flail with the white head that I need to know. It's not perfectly white, but you you know. I mean, see a doctor if it's I mean, it can white. be eventually. No. Now, Hobgoblin Layers 
are more akin to cities than caves or the wandering tribes oh, we've layers. seen. Layers. I thought you meant like people that lay things. They will set root. <laughs> God damn it, Adam. I've been trying my hardest uh, tell to me, soldier on through this. I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> tell me more about how they set root. They will set roots somewhere <laughs> with good resources and good land to farm. They require access to plenty of... I'm reading my thing and I'm just going... Adam's going to mess with this. Yep. They require access to plenty of wood, uh-huh. stone, uh-huh. and metal. Mm-hmm. If they find such a place, they will build permanent walls, forges, training yards, mills, you name it. With such permanent settlements, of course, you would come up with the idea of can you trade... With a hobgoblin. Mm-hmm. If they are not actively raiding, i.e. they are running recon right now, so aren't actively building the force to the Legion to go the, into war. Look, it, like, I assume that it's like a sports team. You have rebuild phases. Right? Yeah, right. Like you you did your thing. You were a host. Everything went really well. The host is now broken and you've retreated back into your own lands. You're in a rebuild phase waiting to get called up again. Yeah. So they've got to just run a society. Right, you know that these guys are going to be more organized. Exactly what you're saying. Yeah. They've got some permanency to where they want to be. But a hobgoblin warlord will never want you within his walls. So what they'll do is they'll set up a trading post just outside of the walls, so that you know the hobgoblins manning it are protected by the walls. That's just good strategy. Yeah, um, but you can more than come there and trade for goods and coin. Welcome to Hobblegobbles, little baubles. <sighs> so this walled settlement. That a hobgoblin has is more built like a military base as as you would expect. Yeah. Function over form everywhere with plenty of space for drills, weapons training, and animal husbandry. Uh, you already said drills. It is always exceptionally guarded with full regiments of troops walking the walls, scouting, running perimeters, and patrolling the grounds. The only structure not directly used in their utilitarian day of life, way of life, practices are statues that venerate past war heroes and veterans well i mean if it's all about honor there has to be a long-term goal behind that right yeah every legion is going to have a headquarters which is likely to be the most decorated building in the camp with the banners of every banner house along the walls this is where the warlord will meet with his generals captains banner leaders etc to discuss conquest and the day-to-day operation of the stronghold To get to this headquarters will also be a path called the Way of Glory, which is where these honorable dead are interred, with each burial plot displaying banners, status, and accomplishments of the dead warrior. So, because they are a semi-mobile moving army, they don't take their dead with them. The dead stay back home in Hobgoblin territory. (sighs) They are a moving army, but they very much have this base of operations that they will return to in a settlement. Okay. Or in a stronghold. So, no, these guys won't come with them, but they will return to them. I'm just, I'm trying to picture, you're not going to get 12 little goblins with a sarcophagus above their head running down the road after the Hobgoblins. Um... Only if the hobgoblins are returning from a battle. Oh, and the and they just fell. The and they just fell in the previous okay. battle on our carrying. All right. Back. So yeah, I could see that. I just imagine like six goblins losing their way with this thing, and you're you as a party like stumble upon six goblin pariahs carrying like the the golden sarcophagus of a like a warlord, a warlord that has fallen, and they're like, we have no idea where we are. And can, can you please point us towards the nearest hobgoblins? Yeah, Thank you. right. <laughs> Um, anyway, so some legions may also build libraries and schools 
but the subjects will always be related to war and the arcane arts. So now that we know more about hobgoblin life and society, what happens when the hobgoblin legions, bugbear gangs, and goblin tribes all come to form a goblinoid host? We're finally going to talk about hosts now. Well, for one, the hobgoblins are in charge. If there are multiple legions that have found their way into the host, the different legions form up like banners of the new host, each having different status to the new host warlord. The animosity found between legions, like we said earlier, a lot of legions will fight even to the death, is put aside when a host is formed. However, it's not forgotten. That's important. The blind religious fanaticism of hobgoblins taking precedence over a legion's pride, but any slights from one legion to another are recorded and saved. All right, hold on. I got to pause you. We keep banging the drum that these guys are hyper-religious. There's nothing in any of the stat blocks about that. Would you have hobgoblins, you know, pray every day at dawn or they've got a Sabbath day or they've got like, could your party take advantage of um, ritualistic prayer or, or? I think I think they are religious like the Roman legions were religious. So there is ritual that is part of their day to day life probably influences their military upbringing and, and practices a, and drills, but there is a religious undertone to it. There's there's a little uttering of a prayer as you put on your armor. Yeah. But right. you're not necessarily going to church for or, an hour. Or, or you take extreme care of your arms and armor. Yeah. Right? Like you are making sure that your sword is always polished. Your your uh, leather o- uh, armor is always oiled, right? Like These guys are going to have like Maglubia tattooed on their freaking like bicep. Right? Yes. Like, yeah. That's their 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 religious like cultural Catholicism level stuff, right? Like there are the daily rituals of life that influence their entire way of life that are just part of the system, right? But they don't There's necessarily no... have that one day off to. No, I don't. I don't think um... that they're warfaring. They don't have time for that shit. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, so when we see this, we see that any of these slights that these legions have against each other yeah. during the host. Like they could come up during the host. They could come up from before when the host was formed. They're put aside for later when the host dissolves or breaks. These issues will be then handled, right? It's one of those. You got to wait for your court date. Yeah, right? And that the court date's when the ho- like when the conquesting is done, when the host is over, you will get yours. But until then, we will fight side by side. I absolutely love it. It's like, okay, guys, 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 we're done. Everybody turn around, go home. You, you don't have to, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Can I please see Stephen and Bradley in back behind the house so we can finally settle that thing? Yeah, yeah, and I think it would happen minus the voice, basically exactly. Like probably that. minus Stephen and Bradley as well. Is Brad a hobgoblin? Brad is not a hobgoblin, not by a damn sight. No. Anyways, Brad, Brad is a nilbog. <laughs> Very much so. Anyways, bugbears in the host are the special forces. Okay. Now yeah, I admit, we, we talked about this. I think Jeff talked about this. We, yeah. I admit it's here that we really see what you have said about bugbears being nocturnal. After doing my research for this episode, I'm definitely more in that camp now. I would it's agree with not you. canon, but fuck does it make sense. It really makes sense. Because they function as spies and assassins. They answer only to the senior leadership within the host. They can, if each gang shows special aptitude for something, be formed into uh, formal bulwarks, thugs, or murderers. Yeah, and like I say, go back and listen to episode 103 because um, Jeff really jumps into that in detail. Yeah, he does. 
Um, Actually, he gave us stat blocks too that you can find on the subreddit. Yeah, for um, each one of these, he, he built his own homebrew stat. And blocks they're fantastic. Yeah, they're they're great. Yeah. He did the, he did his homework. Just briefly, thugs are the uh, bugbears who leap into crowds to break up formations. Bulwarks are the tip of the spear, charging in with spiked shields to force more openings in other forces. And murderers are those stealthy, silent killers sent to recon and spy or murder sentries in the dark of night. What's interesting to me is that we've kind of doubled up on that. We have these non-statted up bugbear assassins. But later in this episode, we're going to get into the hobgoblin assassins. Yeah. Yeah. Now, goblins in the host are a different matter from the bugbears. When a tribe of goblins joins a host, they know their job is foot soldier. They're, they're, yeah, they're not the, um, they're not officers, they're enlisted men. Exactly. Every goblin, whether they're gatherers or pariahs, has his caste raised to being a hunter. Uh-oh. <laughs> Which is particularly funny because a lot of priors don't know how to use weapons, but now because they're in a host, they have to pick one up. Right, but one of the other things that we talked about in the last episode was that there are some um, Booyog casters that will learn um, spells by looking over someone's shoulder, yeah. right? Which I would assume would be a hobgoblin caster, right? Yep. That they're getting trained under. I think that as a goblin becomes a veteran of more and more um, gatherings of the host, they would be raised in rank up to hunter and lasher because they're only missing the training. Well, I, I would say they wouldn't even be lifted up to lashers because lashers is a tribal only rank. So they... Uh, no, no, but I mean, when the host dissolves and they go back, you could have started off a pariah, done so well at war that you come oh, back. Oh, yes, I, I, I catch what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, a lot of the lashers who come in will still be kind of in charge of the goblinoid, of the, sorry, of the goblin tribe, but that is mainly, they are the talking point. They're the middleman. They're the middleman between the hobgoblins and the rest of the goblins. Yeah. Okay. Um, the lazy, brutish, pothead, bugbear, or incompetent, uncoordinated, ill-fitted, ill armored hobgoblin has dominion over the biggest goblin chief. Oh, yeah. Uh, low end of the totem pole. Yeah. The, the biggest goblin is still lower than is the... still lower than the lowest bugbear. Yeah. Right? Um, goblins aren't dumb to this fact and lose all of their humor and mischief in resignation that they are the front line and thus may soon be drafted into... Mag- Glubiet's War. Yeah. Yay, I said it right. Yes, you said it right. Um, They are the fodder of the host. They manage the slaves, the animals, or perform as sappers, which I imagine is just a goblin strung up with some hobgoblin explosives and sent running at a wall, Helm's Deep style. I mean, maybe. Uh, When I think of sappers, I don't know what that means, so I thought that's sapping and I'm just sitting there. Is that like a fluffer? For the goblinoid host? No. No? No, not for like, oh no, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta nope. sap now. No. After the goblins, the only other additions to the host are literally anything else. Wolves, good. It's good. wargs, yeah. ravens, down. ogres, an example of a tamed hydra with goblins riding each head that direct the beast by controlling the view of its blinkered eyes is in Volos. I'm also a fan. I mean, of, there's not a stat block for it, but but it, I mean, it's mentioned. It's mentioned. Um, I'm also a fan of the carrion crawler ridden by goblins in a row, led by a lantern on a stick. You can get kind of fun and interesting with with these. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say now, if it is more powerful than a hobgoblin or one of the booyah casters or whatnot, there has to be a 
fucking good reason for it to be a part of this. Yes. Right? You are not going to have a hag or a lich subjugated by the goblinoid host. No. Um, you might have a hag. Working as in, an advisor because uh, they've got other goals. Yeah. But they're not subjugated. They're not subjugated. Exactly. Now, a host is a heaving, dirty wave of death rolling over the land to bring more and more glory to Maglubiet. They travel mainly at night, preceded by outriders with raven messengers to direct the flow of the tide. They also travel mainly by foot. But some wolf-bound goblins or warg-bound hobgoblins will form a cavalry that will also be there. However, the book does mention that hobgoblins of high rank may have more unique mounts, like a hippogriff or axe beaks or giant vultures. That's badass. Yeah. I like that. You'll note that bugbears aren't listed with mounts, and that's mostly because they don't ride them typically. The closest they will do is ride in the howdah of an elephant or hydra or other enormous beast with a crew of their bros, reserving their energy for the battle ahead, dude. They are kind of bros, aren't they? Yeah. Like, bugbears are kind of frat boys. Yeah. that and I, I'm getting more and more like they're just nocturnal frat boys. Yeah, they, they just party all night. But they're like that bad frat where if you piss them off, they will murder you and yeah. bury you in the woods somewhere. They're like they're like a 1980s fucking bad movie frat. Yeah, right? Yeah. Now, where the nerds are the protagonist. They're like the frats in Revenge of the Nerds. I have trouble referencing Revenge of the Nerds with any sort of happiness whatsoever. There's a creepy amount of sexual assault that's there, supposed to be There really is. Yeah, so that is one of the franchises that I'm glad has just died off also nerds run the world now so what are we getting revenge for being awesome we don't need revenge for that dan we just do it naturally i guess that's true anyways when a host stops it is for a rest but not for recreation a war camp is erected as a place for the whole host to be based from when before they move on if not just reusing a war camp from a previous host or the ruins of a conquered fort the hobgoblin warlord will make slaves goblins beasts whatever Dig a massive trench in a circle, only interrupted by paths for gates in and out of the camp. This circular form will be how the camps are almost always built, because inside this ring, palisades, gates, and towers form a protective ring around the camp. Inside these walls and gates, the camp is split, much like a hobgoblin stronghold would be. A central command center is built in the middle of the camp, functioning as the headquarters mentioned earlier. Elite bugbear bodyguards stand post at the entrance to this building, and a goblin jester is almost always employed to avoid the appearance of a nilbog. <laughs> yeah. If a camp has no rookery or library, these functions can be found at the command center. As for the feet on the ground, you will have barracks erected for hobgoblins, dens for bugbears, and hovels for goblins. Barracks will be the most spacious and well-appointed in the war camp, with each banner of each legion typically taking the duty of constructing their own lodges. Bugbear dens will be scattered throughout the entire camp, basically wherever a group of bugbears deems a good place to dig a ditch and settle in. Goblin hovels, on the other hand, are placed where the hobgoblins tell them to place them. It's often kept by where the slaves and animals are in a roundish tent so that the goblins can always keep an eye on the slaves and animals. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Also present in the camp, if it does have one, will be this library if the camp is big enough, which is the which will be the collected tomes of the area they are con uh, conquesting through to understand the history while also giving the hobgoblin mages somewhere to work. Several pens and pits will also be set up to store the slaves and beasts of the host and are kept under the watchful eye of the goblin hovels. Members of the war camp are expected to maintain and care for themselves 
mainly, but supply wagons equipped with tools, replacement gear, and other non-perishables are strewn throughout the camp as well. Finally, and maybe most importantly, each camp will have a block, or rather the block. The block is the executioner's block, where worship to Maglubiet, whose favored weapon is specifically an executioner's axe, takes place. This is often raised up in a wide courtyard and is never cleaned of the blood. Those who worship forbidden gods or are caught breaking the rules of the host or are shirking in their duties will serve as sacrifices to the goblinoid god on this block. Near the block will be an ascending weapon stand displaying the favored weapons of the various goblinoid gods still alive, but Maglubiet's axe is always on top. Below come Nomagea's longsword and hand axe, Bargriviac's white-headed flail, the red-yellow whip of Kurgorbayag, the bugbear deities have no weapons on these walls, but instead will have a litany of heads on pikes with eyelids removed and mouths open. So what is the goal of a host? Well, the gaining of territory, conquest, pure and simple. This isn't the raiding of orcs or the skirmishes of a broken up host. This is the directed gathering of land and slaves for the glory of Maglubia. They hold no interest in wanton slaughter, unless they come to elves, that is. So, as to retain the population to subjugate and generate more resources for the host. Those who do put up any resistance are swiftly dealt with, however, and if a host can string together victories and claim enough land, they can often become a nation to themselves, an empire led by goblin interests. But it will only last as long as the victories do. If life stagnates and the conquesting stops, a host will disintegrate into its pieces and all will go their own ways until the next host forms. They will also let some of the those aforementioned offended legions finally exact justice on the offending legions. It'll let the goblins go back to base natures, causing mischief and shirking duties until the tribe is chased out. And also, if they think they could get away with it, in a fraction host, a bugbear gang will take a few heads and make their leave. I imagine that if the hobgoblins left before the bugbears did, any goblins left behind are in for a bad time. Oh, yes. Yeah, for sure. I mentioned that slaughter isn't necessarily the goal of the host. It's pronounced slaughter. It's not. This is true because the hobgoblins know that the established communities have established methods. And so long as those communities don't go against the hobgoblin warlogs. Warlogs? Warlogs. I got a warlog. So as long, so as, long as those communities don't go against the warlord's strict rules, those communities are permitted to continue their methods. A host could even come to respect some of those traditions and laws in a conquered land if they aid in the pacifying of the masses under their control. Enterprising and ambitious people in the subjugated masses may even gain power and standing, gifted by the hobgoblin warlord, for aiding the host in its goals, often at the cost of favor with their own people. Where this line is drawn, though, is religion. Any representatives or buildings of gods not deemed harmless, like a fertility or harvest god, are put down and the structures are re-engineered to venerate Maglubiet over the, over the defeated deities. Any representation of a conqueror god is destroyed and shrines to the mighty one are erected in their place. Now that we're done discussing these brutal leaders of the goblinoid host, let's move on to the breakdowns from the folks out in the field. If you want any more information, be sure to check out the previous Mob Mentality episodes, as well as the first one we did months and months and months ago, Episode 22, Goblinoids, Foes or Fools. But for now, this commercial. Hello, lovely listeners. Or as I like to call you all, my NPCs. Damn it, we're recording a commercial. Right. 
For those of you who aren't aware, we're currently in the middle of a massive project called The Many Roads to Amelia, where we're continuing our Call of Cthulhu series. Adam has been working tirelessly with a number of people to bring different kind of actual play to you guys. Or NPCs. Stop that. No. Oh. As I was saying, from October 2020 to October 2021... That's 13 months. On the 13th of each month, we'll be releasing a single episode of our homebrew saga that lays the groundwork for our next miniseries. Adam has taken over as the Keeper of Arcane Secrets, allowing me to join all the other players on this bizarre and horrifying ride that Adam's twisted mind has come up with. But here's the fun part. Each of these episodes is a one-shot with only a single player. I've massaged the rules to make it a little deadlier and secretly worked with each player to craft each separate story to be radically different in plot, theme, pace, and tone. That means that the players have no idea what the others are up to or what parts of the clues or overarching story the others may know. We're not even allowed to listen to the episodes as they get released, so we'll be going into the next miniseries completely blind. This is exciting because it gives us the unique opportunity for attentive listeners like yourselves to actually know more about what's going on than the players do. That means that you can sit by and listen to all the voices from the Deep Dark of Radiance return, mostly with new characters, and you might be able to put the pieces together in ways that the players won't. Also, there's the threat that if our character dies or goes insane in our one-shot, we won't be invited back for the next series. That's keeping us paranoid, curious, and sometimes reckless, and desperate. So, tune in every month to listen to me and either Dan, Terry, Dave, Megan, or Mieka, or Brad, or the five new voices, as we whittle down the list of survivors and take a look at what mysteries and horrors are slowly unfolding in Northern Canada, Southern America, and subterranean Egypt. <laughs> there are many roads to Amelia, and you are invited to walk them all with me over the next year. Just check the It's a Mimic feed on your favorite podcast provider for a new episode on the night of the 13th each month. Until then, let's jump back into the episode. So, uh, can you give me a hint because I'm recording this commercial with you? Yes, I could. But I won't. I hate you. I know. Welcome back. Now, remember, we're talking about hobgoblins here, so as many of you has, may have figured... They're all going to be medium humanoids. Also, while goblins are neutral evil and bugbears are chaotic evil, hobgoblins are, drumroll, lawful evil. I mean, according to their stats, right? The, yeah. They can be whatever when it comes to, you know, the player characters or you know, special NPC, whatever. Yeah. Right? Well, our first guest here is going to be Dave, and he's managed to dig up a lot more information on the average hobgoblin. Hey guys, uh, Dave here. I'm coming at you again from Eberron. I am continuing my quest to learn more about the Draconic Prophecy, and I'm actually en route to another location. I can't really talk about it right now, but where I am and where I'm going, okay? But we'll get to it later. Uh, anyways, in my travels, I've come across some interesting things about uh, hobgoblins that I didn't know. Now, for instance, there's these kinds of hobgoblins called the Bloody Blue Noses, okay? These are hobgoblins that are born with red or blue noses. They are thought to be a sign of superiority and these hobgoblins often become leaders uh, in the ranks. Now the noses can also like maybe blushes, I'm not sure that's the right word, but you know it, they change color when experiencing extreme emotion. Uh, so yeah, blush, let's go with blush. 
Now, the other kind of hobgoblin that I thought was really interesting was the warborn. Now, in hobgoblin society, it's frowned upon procreating while out uh, warring, okay? So the idea is that they save their effort and energy for battle. Uh, and in fact, if they break this rule, they can be executed for it. Now, sometimes when the female hobgoblins join an army, uh, they are already pregnant, and when they are out uh, roaming, not necessarily in the heat of battle, but when they're away and, and fighting, uh, when they're warring, they give birth to a child, uh, and this child is known as a warborn. These kids are used as symbols to rally the troops. Uh, they're just very symbolic for the, the warrior culture that is hobgoblins. Now, a regular old hobgoblin uh, is actually... Uh, you know, not that difficult. They're half CR, but their armor class is 18, which can be pretty intimidating and hard for a small first or second level party to get past. Uh, however, they do only have 2d8 plus 2 hit points. Their strength, dex, and con are all a little above average, where intelligence, wisdom, and charisma is all about average, if not just a little bit under. Uh, hobgoblins do get dark vision up to 60 feet and they speak common and goblin. Now, they get an ability called Martial Advantage, where once per turn, uh, it can deal an extra 2d6 damage to a creature it hits with a weapon attack if that creature is within five feet of an ally of the Hobgoblin. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Other than that, they get a longsword and a longbow. Nothing too fancy. One of the interesting things about Hobgoblin culture is their use of a rookery. Uh, now, a rookery is a place where you keep ravens uh, and other birds, uh, but specifically for the hobgoblins, ravens, uh, that would be used as messengers or spies, okay? Most hobgoblin camps have a large structure in them that have multiple perches for the ravens to roost or nest in. Think of it as like, I don't know, a giant post with a bunch of bird feeders on it, essentially, but very rudimentary and uh, not symmetrical and, you know, hobgoblin-y. Now, not all of them have this big, large structure uh, in their camp. What some of them will do is have these places for the ravens to roost uh, built into the side of buildings and so on. And when they're out and roaming, they do have a rookery wagon, which keeps all of the uh, ravens together uh, for when they need them. Now, a raven is a pretty basic creature. They're a CR0. Their AC is 12. They have 1d4 minus 1 hit points. Their speed is 10 feet, but they fly at 50. Uh, their strength, con, intelligence, and charisma are all very much below average, where their dexterity and wisdom are above average. Uh, they get a, a mimicry ability, so it can mimic simple sounds it has heard. Uh, nothing too complex, just again, simple. And they get a beak attack, which does like one damage, so it's pretty uninspiring. Uh, these are more meant to be flavor for when your party's, oh, I'm out in the th out in the woods, what do I see? Well, you see ravens circling ahead. Maybe that's a good clue for them to understand that there are hobgoblins nearby. Uh, but, I mean, most of the parties I deal with as a DM are stupid and would just think that, oh, gee, there's birds. Um, let me tell you, if I'm a DM and I'm describing something, it's probably not just for flavor. I like to use these opportunities to present purpose and more background to it. That way I can explain things away later. Oh, well, how did they know we were doing this? 
Well, because of this, and it allows them to think a little more critically in the future, which, let's be honest, is a skill that a lot of people could use, not just inside D&D. For the hobgoblins, I like the idea of the, the blue nose. Now, up in Canada, we have a province called Nova Scotia, and people there are called blue nosers. All right, it's named after a ship. That's a long story. It doesn't really matter, but I think it's interesting. This appeals to me. I would use the bloody blue nose as an antagonist. These guys are looking for the goblin with the blue nose or the goblin with the red nose or maybe it's a regular color but when he gets worked up it starts to glow blue so they've got to find these hobgoblins and elicit emotion from it uh, in order to figure out who it is and what it's doing. So I think there's a lot of stuff you could do with this. The idea of having the, the flesh change color is a unique ability that you don't often see in a lot of creatures and it's something that I would I would definitely play with if given the opportunity to uh, here with hobgoblins. Anyways guys, I think I'm getting close to my destination so I gotta I gotta go. I will catch you guys next time. Anyways, Adam, Dan, back to you. So Adam, um why do you think rookeries and ravens were included with hobgoblins specifically? Do you like ravens as spies especially with no language? I don't, uh, I don't know. I've got an issue with this. I really do. I do not like ravens as spies. It's a very Lord of the Rings bullshit thing to me. It very much is, yeah. And there's no fucking legitimate reason for it, right? You can have a raven that's a familiar that you can communicate with psychically. They can do a little bit of mimicry. Yeah. But they really are not going to be able to tell you where like troop movements are. They are going to be able to hover above. But I guess you're watching raven formations. But yeah. how good are these hobgoblins at training ravens? I think exceptionally good. Right, but how smart is a raven? Not that smart. Uh, not that, not smart enough to be able to have 12 or 14. They're not going to all like hover in the form of a left pointing arrow, right? They're not like that. Oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, they will be smart enough to fly in a circle over a threat or something like that, right? If you see more than a hundred people moving at once, you fly in a circle. Sure, but I bet they only have four or five different commands like that. I, I, I agree. I think they also function very heavily as messengers, right? And that's the tie the thing to the leg and send it. And they will be able to find their way back home, right? It's like, weird that Ravens, goblins got this, but nobody else did. You'd think that there would be other creatures that would... Well, it's because other creatures use things like uh, messenger pigeons if they're going to use something like that, right? I mean, a lot of the... Uh, um, other mobs that we're going to be coming across here either have very traditional forms of written message or magical message. Yeah, I'm talking about the intelligent playable races, right? Like, yeah. why are gnomes not using ravens? Why are I Goliaths I, not using... I, that's, I keep bringing up Goliaths. I, I apparently have Goliaths on the brain today. I, like, yeah, I, I honestly, I think Goliaths would use ravens. I don't say, I don't think... It's just, just weird because that hobgoblins uh, have them doesn't omit their use with other races. That's kind of where I was going with this. It's weird that hobgoblins focused so much on the rookeries. Yeah. Um, in the lore... But I guess that's just because they have such a massive legion that they need to be able to communicate long distances. They don't have access to a whole lot of non-combat um, like spells and magics and whatnot. So I guess I guess when you start to sit there and say, how do they function as a legion? When you reverse engineer, you start asking questions. Oh, ravens. And so they got an entry in here. It just felt weirdly out of place in the fifth ed lore. Yeah. No, but I'm, I mean, you're not wrong. Overall, with with general D and D lore, it fits pretty well. I just, uh, frankly, I'm going to give them slightly more intelligent ravens that can communicate as well as a Kanku can. Yeah, I, I would agree with that level of of mimicry almost. Yeah, 
right? Like they'll fly back in in the voice of the other one. Well, well they have the ability to mimic, but it's very, very it's rudimentary. It's rudimentary, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Dave also mentioned using hints and details to encourage future critical thinking in his campaigns. He said that he would not show a rookery unless it was going to be a plot point within his campaign. He would not show that there were ravens unless it was a plot point in the campaign. He doesn't add details in. Willy-nilly. No. If he adds a detail, it's there for a reason. To encourage critical thinking moving forward for puzzle pieces and shit for his players. Do you do this? No. No, I like my fluff. I like my flavor. Yeah. And I want to obfuscate and drop my clues in and among every regular day life. So th- this is kind of a double-edged sword. On one hand, yes, it, Dave's right. It would encourage more critical thinking. it get people to pay more attention to the stuff coming out of his mouth as he's playing. But for... Every single little plot piece or, or item or uh, environmental like landscape piece to be specifically mentioned to have a specific plot point. That requires a level of prep I'm or, not no, willing or, to or, do. Or it's just omitted, right? Like, yeah. I think what, what Dave is saying is, oh, there's a number of swords hanging around on the wall in the throne room. The one directly behind the throne itself is bright blue. I mean, the players are just going to go right after that bright blue sword, right? Yeah. Like, you've yeah. made a point. Uh, that, to me, is just leading them by the fucking It's nose. It's a form of railroading. Uh, or, or well, it's it's, it's carrot a, on a sticking. It, yeah, it, it really is. I understand when you have inexperienced D&D players or people that are just looking to blow off steam at the end of the week or, like, whatever it is. If I was going to run online games with strangers, I would be more apt to do that. But around yeah. my own homebrew campaign with the people I've been playing with for years that... That know how I operate, yeah. that are looking for clues. Well, a lot of these things, like, they add they add meat to the bones of the culture of hobgoblins or whatever mob we're covering, right? Like, yeah. it makes them feel more real. It makes them feel like an established society, right? If you just go into a, go- a hobgoblin stronghold and everyone's standing in rank, rank and file ready for a fight and it's just a big open courtyard, maybe a couple little buildings for smattering of line of sight blocking terrain then you're just playing a war game put down the D, play warhammer your enemies your monsters they have to have some flesh to them they have to be like fleshed out i mean other than skeletons but um they have, hey they have to have some sort of cultural weight almost to yeah them. like that they, they have to feel real for them to be threatening right so adding things like a rookery or the fact that they use ravens is fun and humanizes the enemy in a way that makes them more threatening. Yeah. Makes the players pause before they draw their swords. This is why I would definitely include things like ravens. I don't like ravens as messengers and shit. That's never going to come up, right? Unless I'm going to build a specific detail or encounter something around it. It's just, it's going to fall by the wayside. But I would still include it in my battle map. I would still, like, I'd bring it up kind of in passing. And to the left, you see a rookery, right? And stuff so that there are these details without saying, there's clearly a clue within the rookery, right? So, which brings us to to Dave's other thing about these bloody Bloody blue blue noses. noses, yeah. Um, And you mentioned before that all of the males have these, but it's very specific that there are some that have pronounced Blues and yeah, and I mean they they kind of they kind of go from blue or red or, or back and forth, and because hobgoblins have this kind of ready orange, you keep saying orange. I don't know where you get that from, man. You have done that a couple of times. Where I'm like that is not the fucking color we are looking. There's something. Are you colorblind? No. Are you sure? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. What is this color? Red. Okay. What is this color? 
Oh, purple. Yeah, it is. Anyway, so <sighs> I, I just think that the idea of using the um, <sighs> the nose to signify that someone is special in some way or like it's a unique leader or you've got to go hunt down that guy feels a little video gamey to me. It does. Right, like the, the flashing item on the counter. In the oh, it, it feels like like that's where you punch the dude. Like that's yeah. that's the weak point. Yeah, it's it's the the um, auto aiming feature just locks in on the you know the glowing red thing on the chest. Yeah, but that's the trope that people are used to playing with. Dave is a big video gamer, so I think that's why he leans in that direction. Do you like that? Is that a useful tool? I mean, it 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 it, it is very much in conjunction with the discussion of rookeries, where I like having it. It makes them feel more fleshed out makes them feel more real so i like having this there it would give no mechanical advantage it may if you take down one of those guys the other hobgoblins might be a little bit more hesitant to attack you or like they 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 might just take that half step back right like but it's not going to have a big effect in the game unless you're 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 hunting the guy with the blue nose down right 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 um, and that could very well end up with you looking into a hobgoblin war camp with, you know, 12 hobgoblins all with blue noses. And now you got to figure out which one it is. Yeah, but that's fine. And if that's going to be what your encounter is, and that's your mission for the session, that's cool. I, I, this is not stuff that I would inherently do. This is stuff that I think that people can lean on if they're, Dave says critical thinking, I want to say if the people that are around the table are not here for a strategy war game. Yeah. Right. Then then hand feed them some of the answers using these tools and tactics. Yeah. There are details with every mob. They can be like, oh, sometimes it's like uh, we mentioned in the Eric Cochra episode that came out. Some of them are eagles and some of them are parrots. Yeah. Just hit them with the, like, the thing they may not be expecting or the unique version of it yeah. so that they, yeah. they've got something they can focus on. Yeah. So with all of this focus on war... It's clear that hobgoblins will fall into different ranks in a militaristic style. We did mention that they do have their ranks earlier. Um, This is one of the very limited times that 5th edition actually gives us an actual breakdown of what the ranks are. Yeah, normally they will give you like chief, sub-chief, shaman. Yeah, and I mean we we read in... uh, If you read in Ravnica, when you're looking at the different guilds, there's kind of ranks in there as well for each guild. But when it comes to this, this it's very militaristic and they've broken it down for us. So your base level hobgoblin is going to be a soldier. This is your main infantry. Do do you use the base hobgoblin stat block for soldiers? Yes, I would. I would, yeah. So what do you use for hobgoblin NPCs? Um, The base level I, I would oh, say you, you do like to do in the DMG where you grab the merchant stat block and then add the hobgoblin. Yeah, sure. Stat, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then give a proficiency with all martial weapons because they're bloody hobgoblins. Well, I mean, the DMG in theory does that work for you, but yes. it doesn't quite fit the lore. If, if it doesn't fit with the lore, I'll add it. It's fine. Yeah. Anyway, so the first level is a soldier. The next level up is a fist. The next level up is a spear. The next level up is a fatal axe. I'm sorry, a fatal axe? Fatal axe. A fatal axe. Yes. Okay. And then after that, we have more traditional rank names of a captain, a general, and a warlord. So there are seven ranks. There's seven ranks. That are that are listed there. Okay. And I would assume that like if you are fleshing out a legion, you're going to have a number of generals, one warlord, a number of generals, a number of captains under each general, and so yeah. on and so forth. You could, in theory, by the time you break it down, have dozens of let's say fists or spears yeah. as part of this legion and we haven't even gotten into bugbears and goblins yet and i think these sorry these hosts 
are thousands strong. Well, I also look at things like Fatal Axe, Spear, Fist, Soldier, like their name precludes them to a role in my mind. So like a spear would be the spear of uh, like a, like a spear formation. I'm not saying like a, a formation, but they're the ones that are going to, they might be the cavalry, right? Because they're the ones that are going to go and try to break defenses okay. in a spear point. All right, right? yeah. And um, fatal axes are going to be your heavy, hard hit, right? They're the guys who are, uh, or even would be the siege weaponeers, right? Or, or whatever it is. Fists, very specifically, are going to be your kind of hard blood force. I wish we had lore and stat blocks to for back each that of up. These. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Anyways, we've turned to Terry, who's our own military expert, to run through what a hobgoblin captain is. Remember, this is the third highest rank for all hobgoblins. Thanks, Adam and Dan, for passing it over to me here at the Green Dragon Inn, uh, where I get to talk about my most favorite goblinoid that I've been assigned to uh, thus far uh, in the Hobgoblin Captain. Now, the reason why I'm so excited for this one, for those of you that know me quite well, or if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, is that uh, Hobgoblins are, are, are of a military background. I, myself, are of a military background. It seems a long time ago. It seems like another person's life, but it was my life for six years, and um, and thusly, I have become that person when we're watching movies who is muttering under their breath, that would never happen, that would never happen, that's ridiculous, how much ammunition does this person have, that person's a captain, why would they even be there anyway? I'm that guy. But what that means is when it comes to military type characters in my D&D and the other games that I play, I will ensure that it is accurate, that those characters are acting accordingly to how they would, that the, the organization that they're with is structured correctly, and that there is this is a part of the game that I will make sure that there are no holes in, that I am not just trying to make it up as I'm going along, I'm trying to be reacting um, to, to what the PCs are doing. Uh, I will be very confident in my ability with these types of characters much like a hobgoblin captain would be. So let's take a look at the hobgoblin captain and I'll do some comparisons to a regular hobgoblin as well. This is a medium humanoid. They're goblinoid. They're lawful evil because of course they're lawful evil because they're they're going along with a code because they have very strict training and they do things in a very specific way. There is nothing chaotic about how hobgoblins operate. Armor class of 17, they're going to be using half plate. If you're going off the standard flavor text, this is actually slightly lower than a regular hobgoblin because a regular hobgoblin would be assigned a shield, a hobgoblin captain would not be. There's room to play with that if you want to though. Higher amount of hit points than a regular hobgoblin. Regular hobgoblin is coming in with 2d8 plus 2, hobgoblin captain 68 plus 12. Speed will be the same, standard speed. When it comes to stats, we're going to see some beefed up stats in comparison to a regular hobgoblin. We're going to see a, a higher amount of strength, higher amount of dexterity, higher amount of con, intelligence. Wisdom would be the same, uh, but charisma would be higher. Let's look at their abilities here. They have martial advantage. Once per turn, the hobgoblin can deal an extra 3d6 damage to a creature it hits with a weapon attack if that creature is within 5 feet of an ally of the hobgoblin that isn't incapacitated. So essentially this is a this is a tactical move. Because the hobgoblin captain has been fighting tactically, putting themselves in a tactically beneficial position, they gain more damage uh, from their attacks. Makes perfect sense and it puts you as uh, as the as the DM into that tactical mindset now. You know, this this likely isn't going to be a roleplay heavy encounter, maybe exploratively heavy, because the Hobgoblin Captain is going to put their 
team into a position where they can fight strategically and they will definitely take environment into that fact 100% um, but it's definitely going to be very combat heavy uh, encounter tactically heavy I should say for actions the multi-attack the hobgoblin makes two great sword attacks they're they're very well pr practiced and very successful uh, martial fighters this makes sense so they have a great sword attack 2d6 plus 2 um, piercing damage is it piercing damage? I thought it was slashing damage. We'll check that. I always thought Great Sword was slashing damage. That might be a typo there, um, but maybe not. Uh, Javelin, that's going to be 1d6 plus 2 piercing damage. Uh, they have leadership as well. This recharges after a short or a long rest. For one minute, the Hobgoblin can utter a special command or warning whenever a non-hostile creature that it can see within 30 feet of it makes an attack roll or a saving throw. The creature can add 1d4 to its roll provided it can hear and understand the Hobgoblin. A creature can benefit from only one leadership die at a time. The effect ends if the Hobgoblin is incapacitated. Okay, I'm going to talk to you about some unique ideas for Hobgoblin captains. When it comes to military-like creatures within D&D, I'm telling you, from my perspective, it is your responsibility to do your due diligence on how these creatures might operate. This is a military type creature. Everything is well trained, rehearsed, practiced, there are standard operational procedures with how this person would act, and everything will be well thought out. From the environment, to the words that it uses, to how it controls its emotions, to how the soldiers, its other hobgoblins and goblinoids, will move on the battlefield. You should not be making this up on the spot. It should be thought out and rehearsed and done very strategically. Even if you don't care about military history or anything like that, use your nerds. Use lessons you've learned from playing chess or checkers or Warhammer. But use deliberate strategy and use it to the point of a fault as well. And I want you to think about things like like the Romans. The strategy and the standard operating procedures of the Romans was the reason that they were so successful. But it was also the reason for one of the reasons for their downfall. Because in, in operations like that, it can become very predictable. It, it will work to a certain success until maybe the enemy changes, until the situation changes. So if you if you have what's called um, an opposing force, conventional type warfare, your army versus another army, there's tactics and strategy that we know will work in that situation. But those same tactics and strategy will not work if you have an opposing force against an insurgency, for example, somebody using guerrilla warfare. It will not work the same. So think that way in that the situation where the Hobgoblin Captain's strategies and tactics will work phenomenally well until the situation changes where it won't work as well. Sounds like a lot of words there, but what I'm thinking is, is just lean into that type of thinking. It'll make the game very fun, but it also allows the players to think how they're going to beat that conventional strategy. Something that works very well until it doesn't. Hobgoblin Captains are fantastic. Uh, I'll nerd out on military stuff all day because it's a huge part of my pa my past um, when it comes to the background types of the hobgoblin captains when it comes to rank structures um, the types of soldiers and officers that will be in certain places that will be making certain decisions how they will react to certain things remember a lower ranking hobgoblin can only approve or allow so much before that person needs to go to the hobgoblin captain the hobgoblin captain themselves can only prove or allow so much before they need to go to the next person it becomes very uh, there's a lot of bureaucracy that will come into this but um, it's 
it means that your game should not be so fluffy, shouldn't be so fluid and everybody can just agree to or say whatever they want. You know, they may come on the wrong end of an intimidation role where the Hobgoblin Captain is intimidated, but they may just not have the information that you are trying to extract out of them. Or they may well be intimidated, but they may not give the information because the person above them is much scarier or will do something much worse to them than the party. You have to you have to think like that with these types of military personnel. Okay, that's it from me on Hobgoblin Captains. Thank you very much, guys. Back over to you, and I'll be here next time you need me. First of all, Terry's right. In the hands of a Hobgoblin Captain, a greatsword does piercing damage and not slashing damage. That's weird. Yeah, uh... I personally checked the official errata as well, where Wizards of the Coast updates misprints, and this has not been amended. So, DMs, take heed. You need to choose whether or not this is intentional to give us the idea of a fighting style that they specifically use with a greatsword, or if this is a uh, misprint or an accident that, that is in there, and you're just going to change it back to slashing damage anyway. So, Adam, do you know what like the traditional Scottish Claymore how it was actually used on the battlefield? Yeah, like this. No, no. Uh, how are you able to bend like that? Oh, oh, well, look at this. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. No, okay. So, anyways, the claymore um, has this... Front towards th- enemy. Literally, pointy end towards the enemy, but it was often quite used as a main charging weapon, right? So, the, uh, the front line would have their claymores out. They would run forward, usually one hand behind the guard, the other hand on this kind of protected part of the blade, and they would ram it into uh, the front lines, let go of it, and pull out their broadsword, which often had a cage on it. And that is their main weapon. But you just get two attacks with the with the piercy greatsword. Yeah. I mean, yes, I... I how hobgoblin captains do it doesn't really inform that. Like maybe poke that one dude and poke another dude. Like it great swords are big weapons. I don't understand like this finesse that they have with them. But when you see how but, trained but, a hobgoblin force is, it makes sense. Right. Oh, yeah. Especially o- only hobgoblins th- have this too. Yeah. And the third rank from top. Yeah. Which right. Means like, they're, they're pretty well trained. They're pretty well trained. Now, do you agree with Terry's assessment of Hobgoblin enemies relying heavily on strategy and tactics? Yes, absolutely. Hobgoblins are going to be the most strategic things that we have seen out there on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Of all of the mobs, and I do mean all of them. I'm trying to like really quickly off the top of my head. Okay, maybe devils. Maybe yeah. devils because they're well, militants. Well, devils also travel in legions. Yes, but they and they've got very specific uh, tactics because their rank literally changes their form and their yeah. body, right? But I cannot name. I mean, not even Drow or Duragar legions are like. I, I would say are Drow are conniving. They're not this militant, yeah. right? Elven armies are not as militant and strategic. Like that is the thing. They bring libraries full of books on war to be able to learn, right? These. Hobgoblin um, captains are going to be the most strategic things on the battlefield, except for the other higher hobgoblins out there. Your players need to understand that there may only be four hobgoblins and there are five players, but this is still going to go poorly because those hobgoblins are going to be better strategists. This is when I, as a DM, am going to take the kid gloves off and say, all right, I'm going to build this encounter around the environment. I'm going to put a little outcropping here so I can put an archer behind it. I'm going to put a thing, and I'm going to build this so it's fucking hard. Because that is how hobgoblins work. Goblins, bugbears, not so much. You're going to fight them anywhere. Yeah. 
But for specifically hobgoblins, this is when your DM gets to play chess. You, it will be incredibly difficult for your party, even the smartest members among your party, to su- to surprise a hobgoblin. But I will say this. Terry is also right in the fact that when a strategy works, a hobgoblin will do it over and over and over until it's proven to have failed. So this is, I mean, it's like shooting at the Borg with the um Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Eventually they get the... Yeah, they, they will... Um, learn the frequency uh, and and be able to block the phasers, right? Yeah. So then you have to go back to the drawing board and recalibrate the phasers and do it again, right? So you are consistently having to update your tactics. If the hobgoblins are there and they're used to fighting a main force, but you guys come in stealthy or with extra weird magic with reverse gravity, that's going to fuck up the hobgoblins. Your guys are going to win this round. Yeah. Next time, they'll have something for the reverse gravity or for the stealth or for whatever uh, it is. They're kind of like Taskmaster from uh, the comics. Yeah. Right? Like, he learns every strategy and learns his opponent's combat methods as he fights them. Yes. So It's why Taskmaster can go toe-to-toe with guys like Captain America, because he learns Captain America's power and uses it against him. Yeah. And that's that's what you're going to see with a Hobgoblin Legion, assuming that they can get survivors back. That's the other thing about about Hobgoblins that I kind of want to point out. Whereas other people will retreat, they will flee a battlefield. Hobgoblins won't. They will have a, a, hey, you know what? We are down 40% and they're down 10%. We are losing this battle. There will be a proper withdraw off the battlefield. We will call these ranks back first. Officers, get your people together. Back we go. And they. It's, it feels very uh, like British, like during the American Revolutionary War level stuff, where like everything was so hard focused on their tactics and, and like their written down military stratagems yes this is the way that you do this yeah i don't think that hobgoblins are going to be great at guerrilla warfare um yeah so they're gonna get until that battalion that uh, banner has lots of experience and then they will become good at it yeah but no I, i was gonna say they're not good at spontaneity they're not going to be able to adapt during the battle yeah the bugbears will be fucking great at it. Yeah. The bugbears are going to be like, oh, shit, we're losing. I'm going to start throwing rocks, right? <laughs> like, let's, hey, dickhead, over here. And just like whipping rocks at people, right? Yeah. Um, uh, goblins will be like, ah, what's that over there? And then fuck off to the left, right? Like, like they will be very spontane- spontaneous, but um, hobgoblins are going to say, no, there's a right way to do this. Well, I completely agree with you. Um and that is going to be kind of the the avenue that your party is going to be able to attack at a hobgoblin force. Remember that they are very rigid and set in their ways. This is the difference between the orcs were barbarians. These guys are fighters. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so that is the big difference that I, that I run in my mind about the idea of military training. Yeah. Well, moving on, despite the seven ranks of militaristic hobgoblins, they only give us two stat blocks in 5th edition. Three... If you assume the average hobgoblin is a basic soldier. Which I'm not sure I do, but okay. Okay. There is a lot of room for homebrewing between CR half hobgoblin and the CR three captain. But let's talk with James and jump even higher to CR six, where we have the baddest bat of all, the hobgoblin warlord. Hobgoblins operate in a legion, which is further broken into banners. In their society, all orders are to be followed without question, even if they are to result in the individual's death. If it's to bring home glory and honor to the legion or a particular banner, 
They show deference to their gods, such as idols of Nomagia, who receive a bow in all but emergencies. And if Maglebayat calls to war, they all answer. Though throughout the realms, they are known as a violent and hostile race, who will take no insult. This has led to a very civilized and a large politeness amongst themselves in order to avoid insult and that insult being answered. Now I'm going to go into a bit more detail on the Hobgoblin Warlord themselves. These creatures have an AC roughly of about 20, because they wear plate mail and have a shield. Hit points are 13d8 plus 39 and a movement speed of 30. Their strength is fairly strong, dexterity is better than human, constitution also fairly strong, intelligence once again better than human, wisdom is average, they have a saving throws in wisdom, intelligence, and charisma, a dark vision up to 60 feet, and a passive perception of 10. The languages they know are common and goblin, and their challenge rating is about 6. Hobgoblin warlords have a special ability called Martial Advantage. Once per turn, they are able to do an extra 4d6 damage to a creature it hits with a weapon attack that is within 5 feet of an ally of the Hobgoblin that isn't incapacitated. Hobgoblin Warlords also have multi-attack, 3 melee attacks or 2 javelins. For melee attacks, they have access to a longsword, which is plus 9 to hit, 5 foot range, does 1d8 plus 3 damage, or 1d10 plus 3 if used two-handed. They also have shield bash for plus 9 to hit, 5 foot range, 1d4 plus 3 if the target is larger or smaller, a dc14 strength saving throw or it will be knocked prone. They also have a javelin which can be used melee or ranged. 5 foot melee range or 30 foot with 120 foot disadvantage ranged, 1d6 plus 3. They also have a unique ability called leadership that recharges after a long or short rest. It gives them the ability for one minute to see any non-hostile creature within 30 feet and add a 1d4 to its attack or saving throw. They also have the reaction called Parry. The Hobgoblin can add 3 to its AC against one melee attack. If it can see the attacker, in conclusion, a well-prepared Hobgoblin Warlord, with its banners and legion below him, would be a challenge for any army or any party to face. So I'd be careful following any goblins or Hobgoblins into dungeons or ruins, because you never know what you're going to find there. As I continue to pour over the volumes in the stone library of Graven Hollow, I'll throw it back to you, Dan and Adam. So before we go any further, here's another mob member with a shield and a versatile weapon. Remember, if you're going to use the bigger damage die, that means the warlord is dropping his shield and his AC drops by two until he picks up his shield again. Yeah, I mean... They need to fucking say that somewhere in the... They don't. Yeah. Right? Versatile, if you're using the bigger damage, he's using two hands. He can't hold a shield. Like, come on, guys. Also, okay, what do you think the logic is behind the Hobgoblin not getting a shield when it's a captain in favor of the greatsword and then adopting a shield again when it becomes a warlord? Hold on. Does this indicate a shift in thinking? 
where captains are more offensively minded, but warlords see the benefit of balanced tactics. No. I think it has to do with rank. A warlord understands that he must survive to run the... So you don't think a cat? Yeah, but base hobgoblin carries a shield. Yes, but a a soldier carries a shield. Yes, but a captain will who pokes. Remember, he's piercing. Yeah, he's a pokey pokey. Yeah. Also, I think he's he have a fucking tower shield that he's poking around, right? Like, yeah, but then he couldn't use a great sword. Yeah, I know, but I mean, it's still it. Ah, this piercing thing drives me nuts. Anyway, (laughs) Um, I I honestly think it's just the the way a captain plays his role out in the legion in in like the actual on the battlefield um, is going to be at the tip of the spear he's the guy leading his forces he's the william wallace right like he's going to be charging first ahead of everybody else and that requires him to have this big f off weapon to start the point right um the warlord isn't going to be the first one in the fray the captain will the warlord won't be the warlord's going to hang back a little bit. He knows he's got to run the strategy. He's running the forces. Do you he think needs this, to be able to lift that shield to block an arrow so he could command. Do you think that the warlord would even be on a battlefield for smaller skirmishes? For smaller skirmishes? Hell no. He's only there for the giant big move. We, today we siege that fort. Yes. I will be here to oversee this. Yeah. Um. I, I see the warlord maybe not having gained a little bit of pudge. From inactivity, because he's still a hobgoblin. He is still going to be, like, training and everything else. But he is aged. He might be a little bit slower. I disagree. I disagree 100%. CR fucking six. All right. You need shit tons of magic to be any sort of goblinoid that can come close to a hobgoblin. Fair enough, yeah. These guys are um, Tywin Lannister. Yes, they are sitting there. You're right. They're a little bit older, but they will fuck you up on a battlefield. Yeah. Uh, they know because they've done it. They've got the experience. They are sitting there looking at the map with all the different colored pieces on the map going, okay, so that cavalry just fell. Do we have any news about the left rank? And the, like, and that's that's yeah. where we're going with, with the um, Hobgoblin Warlord. By the time you get into a fight with him, this is the end of your goblinoid like campaign, right? Yeah. Speaking of their experience with uh, strategy and stuff, you see this parry ability, and it's a lot of fun, but it's got a couple extra prerequisites. The Warlord has to be wielding a melee weapon, and it only uses it on attacks it knows will hit. Yeah. Right? That's really useful as a DM. Yeah. Which means it's not going to waste it on weaker attacks. Do you include the shield as a melee weapon for this, considering it has a shield bash attack? Yes, 100%. Yeah. I do too, and it adds a lot of really you, cool. You flavor. can fucking parry with a shield. Yeah, I mean it's not great, but it's not perfect by the definition of what a parry is. Um, but I 100% see a warlord being able to use a shield effectively enough to knock someone the fuck back. Yeah, right, and then pick up the sword. It bothers me that hobgoblin warlords are the only ones who get this. I would love. To I'd have give it this to a general a too if I was gonna. Well, I would like to have this as a player. There is, there are all sorts of fucking crazy things players can do already. I don't need to hand this out. Maybe if you're going to build a special kind of fighting style. A shield. A shield fighter should have something like this. Like an offensive shield fighter. Yeah. As a fighting style. I agree, it should be a fighting style. Uh, yeah, it feels like it's a it's a, or a six level thing? it's a six level um subclass feature. Yeah, so uh, like a battle master thing, yeah, that makes sense. Now, there are more kinds of hobgoblin warriors than your average military structure implies. In Volos, we got two more kinds of unique stat blocks that give us a bit of a deeper understanding of Hobgoblin culture. So we're going to go to Brad to get more information here. 
The Hobgoblin Devastators are casters amongst the Hobgoblins, much improved over the Hobgoblins. And they study in a place called the Academy of Devastation. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Academy of Devastation is a training ground for goblin casters, effectively. Uh, the flavor text around it goes like this. Hobgoblins know the exact value of arcane magic and warfare. Where other cultures treat magic as an individual pursuit, a calling that's only a select few can even attempt, Hobgoblins practice mass indoctrination and testing to identify every potential caster in the rank. The Academy of Devastation is a Hobgoblin institution made up of spellcasters. Members are sent abroad to test young Hobgoblins. Those who show an aptitude for magic are enrolled in the Academy, brought to a hidden school, and subjected to a rigorous regimen of drills, exercises, and study. In the Academy's view, every young student is a potential new Devastator, destined to be forged into a weapon of war. Hobgoblin Devastators have a little knowledge or use of spells that have no use in the battlefield. They are taught potent, destructive spells and also learn the fundamentals of evocation magic. The death and destruction they bring about is worthy of as many accolades as the ruin brought by traditional warriors. Luckily for their enemies, Devastators seldomly employ sophisticated tactics, functioning essentially as a mobile artillery battery. They can bring tremendous force to bear, but rarely display the versatility and inventiveness of spellcasting elves and humans. Now, Hobgoblin Devastators, unlike their Hobgoblin counterparts, are a much improved version of the Hobgoblin. Uh, where Hobgoblins have a CR of one quarter, I believe. You got a CR of four for the Devastators. They have an array of spellcasting abilities and uh, improved stats in almost every area over the standard Hobgoblin. So the Hobgoblins uh, Devastators themselves, they've got above average strength, dex, they've got a great, pretty good con, an excellent int, they are int casters after all, a decent wisdom, and uh, okay charisma uh, with no stat being below 10 they're actually pretty well statted out uh, they're skilled in arcana and like all hobgoblins and goblinoids they do come with dark vision uh, and languages in common and goblin so hobgoblins have an ability uh, called martial advantage which gives them an extra 2d6 damage on melee attacks if there's someone else in range well hobgoblin, Devasta hobgoblin devastators get the same ability when they are casting spells. So if there is an ally within five feet of an enemy when they cast a spell at that enemy, that they will deal an extra 2d6 damage, as long as the ally isn't incapacitated. They also have an ability which is really interesting called Army Arcana, which when they cast a spell that causes damage or focus, forces someone to make a saving throw, uh, it can choose itself in any number of allies, yes, any number of allies to become immune to the damage caused by the spell and to succeed on the required saving throw. Any number. That's crazy. Uh, as far as spellcasting goes, they are 7th level spellcasters and they have uh, wizard spells prepared. They are in casters. So the cantrips that they have prepared are Acid Splash, Firebolt, Ray of Frost, and Shocking Grasp. They have 4 first level slots that they can cast on Fog Cloud, Magic Missile, or Thunder Wave. They have 3 second level slots that they can use on their choice of Gust of Wind, Melf's Acid Arrow, or Scorching Ray. They have 3 third level slots that they can choose Fireball, Fly, or Lightning Bolt. And 1 fourth level spot that they can use to cast Ice Storm. Now you'll notice a lot of these, almost all of them, are damage spells, as it said in the flavor text. The goal of Hobgoblin Devastators is to do as much damage as possible on the battlefield. They're not really interested in utility. So the one that does stand out to me in that sense, we've got a couple, but Fog Cloud, Gust of Wind, and Fly, while they do do a 
good job of controlling manipulating a battlefield they don't really fit into that all damage all the time mindset but it just goes to show that even a caster that's focused essentially on doing as much damage as possible still wants to have some utility on the battlefield and can use it to their advantage in order to do more damage uh, as far as melee attacks should somebody get into their range they do have a quarter staff that they can use to make an attack they actually have plus three to hit with it and uh does 1d6 plus 1 bludgeoning damage, so it's not terrible. I love the flavor of the Habu Emblem Devastator, and honestly I'm a little bit afraid of its power. It really is quite potent, and at a CR4, if it's well used by a DM, it could do a lot more damage than you would expect for something at CR4, especially if it's protected by other allies, other Hobgoblins, or other Goblinoids. I really would personally lean into the fact that they're not focused on tactics and controlling the battlefield as much as they are as just pure devastation. I really like the fact that, yeah, like a warrior doesn't care how his sword's made as long as it does its job. Who cares how the magic is made or where it comes from as long as it can be harnessed and used to destroy your enemies. I would have my Hobgoblin Devastators be absolute maniacs on the field of battle screeching, hollering, screaming at the top of their lungs, cackling. You would hear them laugh, their laughter shortly before being blasted with a fireball. These guys are maniacal, they're wicked, they're evil, and they are very powerful and not to be trifled with. I'd love to hear how you guys would use these guys in your campaign, or if you've had any encounters with them in the past. How have they been played? Have they been a little more, more cunning and self-controlled, or are they just wild merciless beasts on the battlefield. Let me know. Reach out to me at Clueless Game Master on Instagram or uh, catch me through the podcast. Look forward to hearing from you. Back to you, Dan and Adam. Okay, first of all, he says Arcana. It's Arcana, Brad. No, it is not. It is Arcana in North America. It is Arcana in Britain. So apparently Brad's British? Apparently. So he and Terry will get along. I remember having this argument with Terry like way back when. Yeah. But, uh, we should really gun for this Terry and Brad hosted show. Um, I'm afraid that they will just fall in love and leave us high and dry and leave themselves low and wet. So the, <laughs> the army arcana or arcana, Brad, uh, is a great little detail that allows them to avoid friendly fire, mm-hmm. right? Being able to choose to not hit anyone within the range, um, that's pretty fucking useful. But it is um, just even more so thematically a good fit. For this kind of, of caster. The Hobgoblin Devastator is out there to do exactly what it says in the title. Yeah. He's out there to fucking devastate. devastate. Yeah. Right? And so he is going to do as much damage as possible. That's why, like as Brad says, all of the fucking offensive spells are... Um, or all of the spells are offensive. Except for maybe like two. Yeah. I mean, these guys are supposed to be used in combat. Absolutely. Even their their little subsections in Volos itself, um, right above the stat block, it says, you know, uh, into the fray, only results matter. These guys, they're using simple evocation magic. They're using straightforward tactics, and they are going to um, really bolster the formations that they're a part of by by hitting hard and hitting often and hitting fast. Yeah. One of the constant... 5e design mentalities is that casters are squishier than your average physical fighter. Yep. Um, This AC of 13 and 78 plus 14 hit points really lean into that as well. Considering that they're decent tacticians and they've trained 
to avoid hitting allies with spells, it's clear that the Devastators would wreak havoc from the back of the formation and would avoid any physical confrontation if possible. Yeah, I mean, the AC of 13, the, like everybody else. And no my drummer. No, and that is by far the lowest. The, yeah. Your hobgoblin has an AC of 18. Yeah. Right, so. This dude's walking up in, in like a, a, a red shirt and and like books and a staff and whatnot, but he's not... He's not heavily armored. He doesn't have a shield. Well, he's got studded leather, and that's it. That's right? barely anything. That's now. barely anything. Yeah. Do you agree with Brad's idea that they're wild and chaotic and yelling and whooping? And uh, no, I don't either. No, I mean, I get why he would say that. I mean, they are supposed to be these compared to everyone else who is a rank and file military. Having that one guy in the corner blasting fireballs. Right, and here's a sleet storm and shit. Does seem like it's crazy out of the blue, but for me, this feels like the wizard standing on the turret, creating difficult terrain over here and blowing up that that push yeah. forward by the left flank over there. And we we see we see in like um, with the bugbear uh, mount options how there's this idea that in a goblin host, in a hobgoblin host or a goblinoid host, there are going to be these large like pack animals yep. that have howdas on them. Yep. I see one of these guys standing in a howdah surrounded by a bunch of bugbears. A howdah, by the way, is a structure like those um, those little huts on the backs of elephants yeah. that you you know traditionally see. I mean, I think Aladdin was in one for a bit. I mean, if one, you've watched uh, Lord of the Rings when they take the down the uh, olifants, <laughs> that's what is on the back of them, <laughs> right? I, I And I keep on wanting to say olifants, but I realize that's Timothy Oliphant, <laughs> and that's... No, I think I think that's how it's pronounced. Honestly, I just uh, super legless pisses me off. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, anymore. no, you're you're not wrong. Anyway, so, no, I don't necessarily agree with the whooping and the yelling. Although no. they are going to be casting big magic with area of effect stuff, so I do picture them yelling. Uh I mean, yes, uh, the, the, the same way that when Gandalf casts a big spell Whoa! yeah he, he yeah there's more voice behind it. it it's going to be more gandalf casting a big spell and definitely not like dr strange casting a thing with like glowing runes in the air very quietly and methodical right? no oh, no i oh, fuck i mean it could be I mean, it, could it, be it depends on how you want to play the the devastator that talks about the academy of devastation which is where they go to learn this shit but we don't get any details of what that's like and that's a really cool thing that i wish they would have fleshed out i i I, what do you think it is? Like, how would you flavor that? Just knowing, like, Academy of Devastation, what would you do with it's, that? It's Hogwarts. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's Hogwarts. Including but, the ruins in the back? Um, yeah, no, it's Hogwarts, but the only class is Defense Against the Dark Arts. I mean, so it's the movie Hogwarts. Check. Okay, anyways. So, there's... Did you see any of the movies? Not really. I, I, I hate Harry Potter. It's pronounced Harry Potter? No, uh, Harley Potter. Har- Har- Harley Potter. You, like, you don't like Harry Potter? I really don't. Why? Is, um, it, is it because it has a system that ignores your standard fantasy? Yes. That's it. You're just a fantasy purist? That is actually what it is about. You are one of the Death Eaters in it. You say, hey, you know what? True fantasy is better than your average standard whatever the bullshit mixed blood, mud blood nonsense. That oh, you no. Are. I have no you problem with Voldemort. that. You are Voldemort. No, I have no problem with that side of the story. It's There's some logical inconsistencies there that really, really bother me. For example... How are okay with what they can do with magic? How are they not more present in the like muggle life? 
right? How because how, they purposefully stay out of Muggle life. Yes, because there but are so by few population alone, their population size is very small. I know it's not the impression they give with the fact that there are multiple schools like Hogwarts. There are literally there are literally three schools in the entire world or in Britain. Three schools in the entire world or Britain. In the entire world, that's not true because there's the there's the in the first Harry Potter movie alone. Harry Potter. Um, there's Hogwarts, where all of the Fey chicks come from, and where all the Russian Bolsheviks. Wow. Come from. Okay. So you mean in the fourth movie when there are the oh, yeah, sure. yeah when yeah. there are see you but don't you, know what you're talking. But about. then you go to the uh, Fantastic Beasts somewhere to find them movies, and so not canon, but sure. You I mean, it. no, they are canon. Not in my world. Anyways, no, sure. Yeah. Okay. Hit me. Uh, there's a bunch of. American academies that are in play as well. So like it's not just the one. It seems like every country has several. There there are some logical inconsistencies to it that bother me and also so, JK Rowling as a person annoys me. Oh, so well, hold on. Okay. First and foremost, I'm not gonna go on blast publicly in a podcast to rip on JK Rowling, but uh trans people are people, so let's just leave it at that and move on. So um I am going to say you don't know enough of what you're talking about I, to be able to have any real complaints about this. I, I'm i just saying, this is like me saying, I don't like Star Trek because I don't understand how their f- fucking portal no. portal things make them go down to the surface every once in a while. Just doesn't make any sense to me. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. I, As a person who is raised on fantasy, who loves fantasy as much, they took some base level, like base lore that is fairly universal, like say trolls and messed up how they behave. I mean, I understand that they're their own thing. It's not my flavor. I do not like the Harry Potter movies because of how they, because they called an ogre a troll. Yeah. Kind of. That's your argument. Well, that's just an example. So pedantic. That, that, that is just an example of my, uh, problems with it. I hit us up in the subreddit. Who's right near Dan. Oh no, everyone's, it, it is my unpopular opinion. I do not like Harry Potter and I'm unapologetic about it. I don't. So anyways. Yeah, I just don't think that you have given him a, tr- a chance. I have. My wife is a diehard Harry oh, Potter Oh, that's fan. what it is. No, it's just that's, not what it is uh, at all. we figured it out. Um, so anyways, there's more than one kind of hobgoblin left. We're going to move on here through hobgoblins and it's got a mindset all of its own. So we've gone to Megan, who is our own martial arts. Who's a arts. Ravenclaw who's our own martial arts expert on the podcast and got the details from Castle Ravenloft. Hey guys, and thanks for the intro. Um, As you said, it's Megan here, live from the basement of the Castle of Ravenloft, where we continue to, for lack of better terms, uh, bag and tag. Uh, (laughs) Well, I'm so glad you're reaching out to me again, because I do have some thoughts on Hobgoblin's Iron of Shadows. But first, uh, let me give you a little bit of a background here. So to picture these folks, picture a Hobgoblin, but as a monk, or monk-like, kind of like a secret society of assassins. They are servant to the priest of Meglubiet uh, and are tasked with squashing any like potential threat or uprising that could potentially occur against said priest. Um, so they are actually recruited and trained at any age in their development or, you know, in their age group for being a hobgoblin. So very different from what I would consider. By, the only thing I can really compare them to is the Jedi. But that's honestly what I imagine them. An evil Jedi order. Megan, the term for evil Jedi is, is a Sith. God damn it, Megan. Like, literally. They are tested to see if they are dedicated enough 
and if they actually fail, they die. And those who pass are chosen to be trained. Um, so to me, again, evil Jedi. That's just kind of where I'm sitting with these. So the art that they're trained in is actually the Masters of Shadow and Fist, basically an unarmed martial arts style mixed in with a little bit of dark magic or dark shadowy magic, shall we say, um, to be sneaky and deceptive to like basically their enemies and be able to be like secret, very quiet assassin-like creatures. Um, and if it doesn't really get any creepier than that, when they're actually on mission, they wear masks to make them look more like fucking creepy and devilish. Uh, the idea is basically to keep their identities a secret so they can continue to walk in the shadows, so they say. So I will give you a kind of a quick breakdown here, because um, they do differ from your classic regular weapon fighting hobgoblin. So these guys um, have a solid armor class of 15. If you think about it, I feel like they don't even wear armor. Um, they don't really say that, but I feel like if they did, it'd be very light um, to stay quiet and hidden. Um, they've got some solid hit points, um, a 5d8 plus 10, uh, so they feel a little bit squishy, but I mean, to be honest with you, their challenge rating is only a 2, uh, so it kind of checks out for being your regular hobgoblin henchman, but just with a little bit of extra. They do have a speed of like over, over 30, so they're over their average speed, they're at 40 um, in comparison to a regular human or the original hobgoblin, which is only at 30. So these guys, uh, they're kind of tankish. They do have a high strength, a high dex, and a high con. Uh, so you will not be able to really hit these guys that easily. Uh, strength being a plus two, dex being a plus three, con being a plus two. Uh, but one of the huge differences I see between these hobgoblins and the uh, regular hobgoblins is that their intelligence, wisdom, uh, is actually at a plus two each. So these guys are smart. Um, I feel like these are the ones that you can't really fool. Uh, you're not going to come up to one of these and, you know, pretend to be one of them or pretend to be their master. Like, they're smart enough to come at you, right? Um, their charisma, however, is, only, is at a straight zero, so they're basically just going to be they're going to be able to communicate with you. Uh, so I think that that's going to be a really interesting... I love these guys. It's more of a role-playing aspect uh, to come into your team. So um, for them, they do have a bunch of skills in acrobatics and athletics and stealth. So again, this kind of checks out to the fact that these guys are like assassins trying to sneak around in the dark and come at you and be in secret or, you know, just come in, stab one of your players and run away. Uh, just kind of start off a new little set piece or what have you. The languages are common in Goblin, which means, again, that checks out to the fact that these things are going to be able to communicate with you. Um, they could even be really good translators should they make friends with your group of folks. Again, really cool set piece opportunities with these guys with the fact that they can strategize, communicate, and entertain the idea that, you know, that they can probably lead hobgoblins around as well, right? So for abilities with these guys, they are spellcasters. Um, so they are second level spellcasters. So because their casting ability it comes from intelligence, they do have a spell save DC of 12. Um, so if you are a young party, uh, this might be hard to avoid some of their uh, abilities. Uh, they do have cantrips, so at will they can cast Minor Illusion, Prestidigitation, True Strike, um, and then at first level they do have three spell slots at first level, so Charm Person, Disguise Self, Expeditious Retreat um, and Silent Image. So all of these spells really check out to the fact that these guys are trying to stay hidden, trying to fool you, trying to decept you, um, or just someone that's really good to hire if you want someone dead in secret, right? So my previous theory in the fact that they don't wear armor checks out. They do have unarmored defense, so their AC is included in their wisdom modifier. 
and they don't wield, you know, shields or have armor or anything like that. I guess, like, again, it feels like they need to be secretive and quiet. So for actions, if you're fighting one of these guys, from they do have a multi-attack. So these guys can actually make four attacks. So think about your monk with their fury of blows. This is kind of what they have. So they can attack four times with an unarmed strike or what they have is a dart attack. So I think like little poisonous blow darts probably. That's something that they could definitely carry if you wanted to flesh out your character a little bit more. Um, it can also use Shadow Jaunt once, which I'll get to in a little bit here, um, should it choose to. So it's Unarmed Strike, to get a little bit more detail, um, is a plus five to hit with a reach of five feet, um, and gives five hit points on average, or one d4 plus three of just basic bludgeoning damage. Um, so it's, it's gonna punch you pretty hard. And then their Dart Attack is a ranged attack at plus five to hit. Uh, it does have a solid range of 20 feet or 60 feet um, at max, and it's got same kind of thing, um, usually on average 5 or 1d4 plus 3 piercing damage. So if your um, opponents or your team are going up one of these and you have armor, it could probably hit you with these darts here. And then as I mentioned, they have Shadow Jaunt. So this is the Hobgoblin can actually transport itself, which I think is a really neat little spell to have that's very specific to them. Um, and I like how it has, it does have to like mention within the books and the writings that it takes their equipment and what it's wearing and carrying with it, which I think is hilarious because there's a lot of transportation spells that don't mention that. So I thought it was funny, the, just the idea of a hobgoblin using this ability and suddenly it appears naked somewhere. But anyways, it's up to 30 feet, um, to an unoccupied space. Um, so this is your kind of traditional, it's just gonna flashbang itself out of there if it needs to, right? So it's got a good retreat, um opportunity because again they are quite squishy so if it does end up in the throes of battle they can get themselves out which i think is really cool so honestly as i kind of stated throughout my explanation of these guys my favorite piece is that they are they are intelligent creatures and they are you know not stupid in any way shape or form so i would love to use these guys as set pieces for either mobster bosses that you actually have to communicate with or like if you come across a group of hobgoblins somewhere or just goblins in general they're being led by one of these um, that's going to be the leader of their clan or leader of their group and your job is to try and befriend one of these or utilize them or maybe you're there like an assassin for hire that you use in a game right uh, that ends up following you around because it's intrigued by your mission or your mystery that you're going towards right I just love the idea that normally if you come across a hobgoblin, you're not going to talk to it. <laughs> kind of like in my episode of Kobolds, which you guys haven't listened to, feel free to do so. Um, but, you know, talk to your kobolds, talk to your hobgoblins. I feel like they have a lot of really cool stories behind them. And the fact that these guys have a little bit of a religious piece and background to them, um, I think would be really cool to kind of incorporate, especially if you have a um, wizard or warlock or someone within your group that would be very interested in the magic that they can wield, right? Because these are spells that are very specific to them, um, not necessarily any other being. So I think that's a really cool thing about them. All right, guys, I'm going to try and get some sleep and not have nightmares about anything that's going on here at the castle. So as always, if you want to get a hold of me, you can follow me on Instagram at Omega O, which is actually zero M-E-G-G-A zero. So honestly, back to you guys at the holders of the fort, Dan and Adam, back to you. Okay, did you notice that the art for the Iron Shadow is the only female hobgoblin we see? I 100% believe that Megan is one of these scary, devil-looking assassins in I mean, That's kind life. of rude. I am giving her the respect that she is... I mean, is you said she's devil-looking. She will remember that. 
She's all you would also cackle hysterically, and by the time she's done laughing, you have three little fucking jagged daggers sticking out of your spleen. And they're all made from your ribs that she has just this previously removed. This proves my point. Yes. She's, <laughs> yeah. So anyway. So she said that the AC of these guys is 15. And if you reverse engineer the stats like it describes in the description of the unarmored defense, you can see that it will get this from a plus three dex and a plus two wisdom. Just like a monk would. The unarmored defense, multiple weak attacks, and increased speed really reinforces that this is a monk archetype. It's weird that we don't get more details about this for actual monks. We've got a fucking shadow monk. Yeah. Right? Why? You know what? I just want more details. It's 5e is so lore light. And I know that it's meant to have so that anybody can pick it up and run with it. You don't need to get into it. Yeah. You know, make it up as you need. And I get that. But for those of us that fucking love it, we need to do better than three books a year. One of them is, is a generic landscape way the fuck over there. Yeah. One of them is just, and also think about wizards and rangers and things this way. And then, and then one of them is, you know, moder- moderately useful yeah. for the average DM. I want lore books. Give me fucking lore books. Ugh. Anyway, because of the stealthy nature and the low CR, are you ambushing like Megan implied? Or are you leaning on these guys like the Foot Clan? Like a bunch of nameless ninjas? I mean... Both? They're CR2. They're CR2, so, I mean, I definitely wouldn't just throw hordes of them at a party. I would um, if they're a level, I mean, like, if they're 11 level 10, party. Yeah, yeah, level 10, 11 party, maybe. Um, it brings up that old discussion of what is going to be more powerful, a single ninja or a horde of ninjas? The single ninja is always the most powerful thing. It, yeah. it, it's pirate and ninja and robot rules. When you have an army of them, you can knock them down no problem. When there's one left, it has a name and you will never defeat it and it will kill your best friend. Yes. So it is impossible to actually fight pirates, ninjas, or robots because you will eventually knock it down to just one. And then that guy will have a backstory and now you're fucked. <laughs> so... I don't know. I, I would treat these guys as the Foot Clan. I would have one show up and be a, an NPC or an ally or, or something at very, very low levels. Uh, like, appears in the inn on the, the like the roadside tavern, right, at 3 o'clock in the morning with a message. Like, I've, I've slaughtered your mounts. This is a message. Do not come any closer. And then, smoke bomb. Poof, they're gone. <laughs> and then, way later, you run into, like, six of these guys. And they fuck up your party something fierce, but they do your party limps away yeah and then way later than that you've got a fight against like 12 of them i would definitely have these guys uh i like the single assassin for like a tier one party yeah have have him be like the focus or have them her be the focus there are of so, a multiple session arc there's so many i mean it's a cr2 though so you have to do this multiple session at level one level two right uh, not necessarily. I mean, it's a hobgoblin, so it's going to play into the tactics of the surroundings. You're, you are right. playing yeah. into the tactics of the, of the surroundings could add several CR in that fact alone. Look, between the fucking Red Fang of Shargas, which we covered in the second yep. Orc episode, and fucking Revenants, and there's so many middle-of-the-night assassins that exist out there. I, I want to flavor these guys differently. Do you want to make them more NPC, like Megan suggested? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. So the spell list for these guys kind of leads in that direction as well because it almost is entirely roleplay and stealth-based. So, I mean, it kind of checks out that they're just NPCs. Yeah, I mean, to a point, I can see that I would use them as mystery intrigue or as a couple of, like, advanced scouts, like, running across the rooftop in the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to 
to sprinkle these guys around before you actually run into the host itself. You'll run into a handful of goblins here and there, a couple of bugbears that got separated, and then these hobgoblins in the middle of the night. Okay, so Megan also mentions that their Shadow Jaunt ability is good for getting them out of battles. Yeah. But it would be better if it was a reaction. It's I not. Agree. Yeah. The fact that you can use it before or after any one of their attacks is what makes them particularly annoying. This is fucking whack-a-mole. But I love the idea of them running up, bang, 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 poof, and they're gone. And you're just like, what the fuck just happened? Because this is not going to trigger opportunity attacks. No. This is just going to be them running up. They slap you for their like minimal little five damage. And then they're fucking gone. And like, what the shit just happened? And then they're running at you from behind. Gone again. Yeah. There's no recharge on this. No. So if this is why I say I want to throw like eight of these at a level 10 party, right? Because that's going to feel super powerful, but they're weak. At level 10, you're going to knock three of these guys down in the first round if you can target them. Yeah. I mean, again, I really want to hit home this fact that. Hobgoblins are strategic thinkers by a generalization, right? Yes. So these guys, especially being these kind of weird assassins with this, you know, they're shadow jaunt ability, they're not going to be out in the open for you to easily hit unless they intend for you to be, unless they intend to be out in the open for you to easily hit for a reason. Yeah, they're the distractions the other three can get in behind you. Yeah, right? Yeah. So the other thing that I would I would say about these guys is they're not Danny Ocean. They're not Carmen Sandiego. They may be sneaking around and getting in behind enemy lines and whatnot. But the moment the plan goes bad, again, they're not spontaneous. No. These are hobgoblins. The moment it goes bad, they will just leave that one there to die. And the rest of them will fuck off into the shadows. They will try again another time. Yeah. They will be back and in greater numbers. Yeah. So I just want to say... Thanks to everyone who's helped on this episode. I mean, we really hammered those guys pretty hard to get their clips in and yeah. and shit. So we miss having all of you guys here with us. And we hope that everyone is staying safe and happy out there, uh, except for Dave. I just want to remind everybody that you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and r slash It's a Mimic on Reddit. You can always reach out to us through our email at info at it's a mimic.com because we love hearing from you guys. And any questions that you send us will get added to our lists for our upcoming mailbag episodes. Okay, Adam, as we typically do after the shout out here with, the, uh, with these episodes, we want to talk about a little bit about what we've learned about these things and what they inform us about the mob structure. So when you're thinking about hobgoblins, how are you building this legion? How are you... I mean, it's fairly informed with these ranks, but, like, is there any sort of interesting uh, notes you could pull out of here? Let's roll initiative. Sure. I got a 1. I got a 16, and honestly, I think that we've covered a lot of it. They are so straightforward with the militaristic viewpoint that what you see is what you get with them. Um, What would be interesting here would be how they are interacting with the other goblinoids. Yep. But even then, they're barking orders. And when a bugbear or a bugbear gang is just like, no, fuck you, we're not doing it. Then the hobgoblins and the goblins and the other bugbears will just come in, round them up, tie them up, and execute them on the block. That's it. Like, there's not a whole lot of room for political intrigue here. What the warlord says goes. He is essentially a dictator. He's just not a selfish dictator. Yeah. The the thing that sticks out in my mind is we, we talk about when the host gets the call. What fucking call? Yeah, right? So I assume that we've seen this in previous editions, but I don't know what it is. I guess that it is an omen from Maglubiot. Well, I guess that, the, that when there are enough 
um, hobgoblins in one area and one warlord steps up. When one warlord dies and another one steps forward and is a clear winner, like there's got to be some sort of cultural or societal trigger. Honestly, what I think it is, is um, it is going to be that one, uh, I don't want to use the term blessed, but like one gifted warlord is going to stand up and decide that it is time. Like, I, I think it, it depends on that one warlord stepping up and be like, it is time to form a host. Let's go. I, yes, but I just don't think that it's going to be done for, you know, personal political gain or I need to stay in power and everyone else is against me. I just think that it's like he's not it's not a selfish reason because he and all of them answer to Maglubiat. Hard stop. Yeah. So there is a definitive call the same way that Kurgorbayog was giving definitive omens about slavery to the freaking goblins there will be definitive omens i just don't know what they are mm-hmm. um and so i don't know what that traditional call is i and it could just be the warlord wakes up in the morning and has is just today we go to war and maybe that's all it is and that's all that the inspiration needs to be but there should be a call and if i'm going to have a goblinoid campaign or major arc in a campaign where i'm bringing all of the hosts together i need to know what that call was I actually, I think this is one of those uh, situations where I like the use of ravens, right? I like the use of having um, a warlord know where the local goblin tribes are, where the local uh, bugbear gangs are. And he sends a raven out with just the simple like symbol of Magubliet on it, right? And this goes out, you know, lands at the bugbear uh, like den, hops in. Bugbear picks it up, looks at it, sees the thing on its, like, maybe even crushes the raven because why wouldn't it? Pull this note off and be like, oh, well, crap. Okay, we need to march to the stronghold. Because these strongholds are known locations. They are heavily fortified. And all of the goblins and bugbears and hobgoblins in the area would know where it is. Do you think there are multiple strongholds throughout, like, a country? Is there are different? 100%. But there's, like, the capital? I don't think there's, well, it depends on how successful the host was that kind of established everybody. Right? Like, and this is, these are the details that I want in the fifth ed lore. Well, it says like each legion will set up its own stronghold. So I think each legion has its own stronghold strewn about. Right. But when the host comes together, do they come together in the hobgoblin capital? Uh, Yes. And that hobgoblin capital will be whoever the uh, warlord's. It, so, stronghold is yeah okay and you, do you think there are multiple warlords or do you think every legion is run by a general i think every legion is run by a warlord i would just i see and i wouldn't i wouldn't run it that way i would have the one single warlord. everyone is a general until one steps up and says i've been just i've been chosen i am the warlord and everyone else says okay ga- well, gather the host i think when the host is together those other warlords of the other other legions become generals and they understand that and thus would call themselves a general I just, but if that legion was an autonomous thing on its own he's calling himself a warlord i see that's a very orc thing to me i will call myself this but i'm not actually the but he has the power of it right he could be the warlord that calls together a host he doesn't know he's waiting on maglubiet's blessing but i i just think that he would be the general waiting to be called up by maglubiet yeah look the point is that's what I'm looking for in here. I need to know what this call is. Why is the host together? We know how. We know kind of roughly how long it takes. We we get the idea that, that everybody's going to come together. They're going to be on the march. We know some basic tactics, right? The idea of a siege. They're going to put up blockades if they can. Standard military tactics. DM, when you're going to play a goblinoid host, go out and get the art of war. 
right? Yeah, Pick right. that up and yeah. really like dig into that shit. Um, be, if you are going to really play with the idea, fuck, I would do this with the general of Gahana too, right? There's another like legion militaristic. Yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, and and you see how involved he is with. Uh, well, actually, you don't see. With it's the, implied with but... the bar guest, though, right? Like yeah. we saw how Im- uh, involved the general is with the bar guests. Well, that's just because he's pissed off at Maglubiat. No. Yeah, so I. That would be a really interesting battle, like goblins versus uh, Yugoloths. I just assume that the Yugoloths are just more willing to side with Groomsh. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, so let, let's let's move to homebrewing with these guys. All right. So when we're filling in the rank and file for the for the yeah. other ranks and shit. Yeah. Okay. So what what kind of stuff are you doing here? All right. So with the DMG, we get um, when you create a NPC, you make a hobgoblin, which gets zero ability modifiers. Yep. Which is a little bit odd. Most of them have it. I think only the Kuatoa and the Merfolk also don't get ability changes. Is that just because they're very close to generic human? I think so. Although, yeah. I mean, not for the Kuatoa, but anyway. Um, so, Hoggallon does get any, They do get the martial advantage. That's nice. And the martial advantage um, is when you increase the effective damage of one attack per round by the amount gained from this trait. Yeah. What amount? It's- well, it's different in each one of the stat blocks. Martial advantage is. 2d6 for oh, a hobgoblin yeah. it's 3d6 for a captain right so it doesn't give us that so thanks thanks for that shit you do get dark vision up to 60 feet and of course you get goblin on top of common yeah and that's it for your average npc but then when it comes to you looking at how to build a player character your ability score does increase your con goes up by two and your int goes up by one as you said before, your age is roughly the same. Alignment. Society is built around codes uh, and conduct, and um, they tend towards lawful evil, but you can really do whatever you want. Um, as we've said before, and as Tasha's really tells us, you know, build the character how you want it to be. Um, your base land speed is 30 feet, I, I guess, unless you're doing the monk thing or the odd barbarian thing or whatever. Yep. Um, and, you know, you still get the 60-foot dark vision. You still get uh, martial training with um, proficiency with two martial weapons of your choice and with light armor. I, I love this for mages. Sure. Yeah, I like that because right? I would play, I'd play a warcaster too. Yeah, right? Like it gives you a little bit more versatility, which is always nice. And, of course, you're going to get the goblin language, but you get this thing called saving face, which doesn't show up anywhere else in hobgoblin lore. But apparently, player characters get this. So, because you're not supposed to show weakness in front of anyone else, uh, because you may lose status. Remember, if you lose status, yeah. then you get... Uh, I was about to say, like, it's heavily implied by the focus on status and reputation within their culture. Right, but, but it's, it's not anywhere in the tactics of anything. Like, no, it's not and, a and nowhere block. does it say, hey, they try not to lose face. Yeah. So, if you miss with an attack roll or you fail with an ability check or a saving throw, you can actually gain a bonus to the roll equal to the number of allies that you can see within 30 feet. Which can be a fuck ton. Yeah. Except the maximum bonus is five. Okay. So, Thank you yeah. for the cap. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but you can only do this once for short or long rest. That's dumb. So so you get this little bonus. If you miss by just a little bit, you can say, no, it, 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 it works. I don't like that. I just, I don't think it fits thematically. They're not lucky like that. That's That feels almost halfling-ish to me. Uh, I actually do like it because of just their entire life is focused around the training and combat and especially in a group setting. It makes a little bit of sense where they just make it work. Like they know that unique follow through where they could do the 
actually make that missed attack make sure it looks like it hit right i just think that if you're going to have all of this military training and this emphasis on other things like that then you should be doing things like just give them an unarmored attack as a 1d4 instead of just one damage but that is so like uh, i don't know i i don't like the idea of giving them the unarmored attack it doesn't track for like they don't have claws or tusks or or something that would no but they have training that is my point here, right? Like the hobgoblins, we put so much emphasis on the military and the training and yeah, the way that makes sense. To they, go. they would be able to actually throw a fucking punch. Exactly. Right? Okay, so, Adam. So let's grab our dice. Let's talk plot hooks. Um, let's give a good plot hook uh, each and then we'll move on to campaign ideas. Sure. I rolled a nat one this time. I got eight. As a plot hook, finding the body of one of these venerated... Um, the hobgoblins from down the line and of course it would have like on this cast oh, one of the dead heroes one of the dead heroes um because the hobgoblins venerate them as uh objects of not only military prowess but also the lessons they could learn about the achievements um any hobgoblin warlord would want to have hands on this guy right so having gross having your party come across this sarcophagus and being able to discern what it is and now have to just uh, defend it from hobgoblins or um, protect it from hobgoblins so that it can be opened from some sort of magical arcane lock to get to this unique information inside that would spoil some tactics that the hobgoblins have been using, right? This is the kind of plot hook I would want to have with these guys, right? Because they're so regimented and because they're so... Um, almost ritualistic with with their methods having them written down which they say multiple times getting the players to have that sort of information and then adding the fact that it's a venerated uh a hero of some sort really weakens the hobgoblins in the area so they would want to get that back as hard as possible and it, it is one of those things where now the party's not going out and getting a thing which is often what we do with plot hooks yeah. they're defending a thing i like that i want to for my plot hook I'm thinking this is probably like a four or five session um, arc within your campaign or something. But the host is amassing. The warlord is on the move. Yeah. And your king has a get out of jail free card. There is a document that he has that when he shows it, says, hey, you know what? We fucking backed you 150 years ago. You're going to leave us the fuck alone this time. Yeah. But only the warlord will recognize the symbol or like oh, whatever cool, the emblem is. Cool, cool, cool. So your guys have to get an audience with them. So they are bodyguards for the diplomatic mission. They know what the key phrase is that needs to be said. They know what this what this symbol looks like. Uh, and they have the documentation. And that is when a Leviathan hits the ship as they're going up the coast. And wipes out the ship and kills all the diplomats. And your party survives without the document. But you have to get this message in. And now you're behind enemy lines. Oh, I really like that. So that's kind of like a mini campaign arc. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Like you're going to get five or six sessions out of this. You have to get in with to an audience with the warlord, and the warlord does not have time for visitors or slaves. And if you're back, if you're behind enemy lines, you must be a slave. Hmm. So, like, I you're going to get a real Frodo behind, like, it, going through Mordor, or yeah. or like one of these really paranoid, stealthy kind of feels to it. So. I really like that. That's really that's really badass. Okay, let's grab the dice one more time. Let's talk about like a full level twenty campaign. Yep. I got an eight. I got a number. I got a one. We got again. the exact same roll oh, again. Jesus. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's going to be really really hard not to do a defend against the goblinoid host as a level twenty 
campaign. But I really like this idea of the fact that they're so fanatical, the, sac- the fact that they're so focused on worship to McGlubiet, um, and that that kind of act is uh, exemplified on this block in the middle of their camp, right? Yeah. With this, with this executioner's axe. So as a full level 1 to 20 campaign, I want there to be a goblinoid host that is moving throughout the realm, but they, unbeknownst to them, have McGlubiet's McGlubiet. actual... Axe. They have the artifact weapon executioner's axe, right? That is more than happy to keep killing things. But your party will know through several sessions of intrigue that Maglubiet is wanting to move the battle from Acheron onto this realm. And the key to that is going to be his axe. So your party has to go stop this entire host Probably by picking them off tribe by tribe, doing what you need You're to do. You're teaming up with, with orcs on this, and too. And even, like, even some giants. Some Yugolos. Like, they're going to yeah. be some, like, yeah. There's This house has to be fucking big. Yeah. And you are doing straight up a building an army to take down the army so that you could get in and get this axe. And that's going to be your campaign. No, right? I, I like that. Yeah. Um, I would like to do it from the other point of view. My mini campaign here. And I think I could probably milk this for about level three to level eight. So we could have a lot of fun. I could play this for about five months. Is my yeah, point. okay. Um, everybody play a different kind of goblinoid. Dibs on hobgoblin. Oh, sure. dibs on bugbear. Sure. Everybody gets to play a different kind of goblinoid. And you can use whatever the subclasses or whatever it is that you want. But remember, if you're a magic caster and you're a goblin, then you're a booyog, booyog, booyog. Yeah. Right? Like, we are going to sink our fucking teeth into goblinoid uh, hierarchy. And you, you can start off with maybe, like, the hobgoblin who hangs out with the goblins just because he's waiting for that raven to show up. Because the last time the raven showed up to Cold War with these motherfuckers... They just didn't even recognize that it was a, like the Raven was doing it. They were down in their mind. And they yeah, 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 yeah. Right? And so you've got, uh, there are a couple of people around. You start off with goblins and then your goblin tribe has to start to join the host. There's a Nilbog issue. There's a Barghast issue. Yeah. There's yeah. like, and uh, you start to get, oh, hey, there's a sect of, of goblins over there that are uh, following some great old one. You've got um, a couple of iron shadows that just come and watch and do nothing waiting to see before they're going to make a move against the goblin boss and shit like that. Like you can really play with enough different kinds. Hey, you know what we need? Ogres. Go capture some ogres, level three goblins. (laughs) Right? Like you could really have some fun putting together a build the host campaign. I really like that. Um, I kind of got the idea. You mentioned the Nilbog and it specifically says that the um, hobgoblin warlord puts in a jester to avoid having a Nilbog in the camp just because Nilbogs yeah. are embodiments of chaos. Yeah. Right? Which is everything a Hobgoblin does not want. Exactly. So as a mini plot hook, the Hobgoblin warlord who's sitting there in this state of recomp, right? Like uh, recollecting the whole, like the host is done and they're now regathering, they're, they're rebuilding. Yeah. Um, has hired your party because he can't spare the troops has hired your party to go and kill the Nilbog. It's not even that he can't spare the troops. He's just so fucking done with these goddamn Nilbogs. Just go replace him. Take the bard in your party. Yeah. And just kill the Nilbog and be fucking outlandish while you do it so yeah. that he goes away. Yeah. Right? Like, having the, the hobgoblins be the ones who are, like, just sending your party out to do it. I like that the capstone encounter in that, too, would be, like, 
hey, we are under siege by the enemies. Uh, stay alive through this siege, but you all of you have to just be as wacky as possible the whole time. If you are not fucking wackier than you've ever been in this entire campaign for, let's say, four rounds in a row, I will roll a d4 and decide which one of you will become the Nilbog, and the other three will have to fight and kill it. <laughs> I really like that. Right? Like, I, w- I would do some sort of fun end cap thing like that as the host gets pushed back. So Cool. Anyways, that is a decent portion of what we could find on 5e on Goblinoids. But we've got lots of other kinds of mobs to cover. Don't forget to come back next week when we finally take a look at Kobolds. I love Kobolds. And remember, as Megan said last time when we covered Kobolds, Kobolds. And remember, what Megan said last time when we covered Kobolds, talk to your Kobolds. Anyways, that's it for this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, you could head over to www.itsamimic.com and hit our fancy donate button. Or tell your friends and the rest of your D&D party about the podcast. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as many other podcast apps. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. And now for something particularly deep and personal from our good friend Dave. Thank you for listening to an It's a Mimic production. <laughs> okay, you're done, Gary. <laughs> <laughs>